Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Welcome to Shitty Mayor Mondays, a name we're not actually allowed to use as the title of our podcast because it breaks a bunch of shirt shit in the background. Uh, and I'm your host, Mia Wong, coming to you live from a crumbling basement in contested Chicago that may or may not be hit by a tornado in the next hour. Uh, this is It Could Happen Here. So, so true. It, it could all happen within this next recording yeah, session. It, it could happen in Mia's basement. Uh, yeah, with me, I'm Garrison and James. Hello. Welcome to hell. Hi. I'm in tornado-free San Diego. Did have a tornado warning yesterday. Hmm. Luckily, I'm in the ever-stable Pacific Northwest where nothing bad can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's contractually contractually obligated. It says not no 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 bad things. No no earthquakes here that, that are overdue. No forest fires or record temperatures. It's great up there. So true. So today we're doing a a, a sort of special episode of Shitty Mayor Mondays, which is that uh, we are we are doing the Chicago double feature. Because our previous shitty mayor, Lori Lightfoot, I uh, managed to become the first. I think I think the, the the first Chicago mayoral candidate in forty years who was an incumbent and lost re-election. And not only did she lose re-election, she went out. It, so okay, the the way the way the the the, the, the Chicago mayoral elections have like a trillion candidates. Like I think there were like nine this time, and if no one can get above fifty percent, it goes to a runoff. And she got knocked out before the runoff. Which is unbelievably funny. Um, 
So we're going to talk about her first as the sort of the Lloyd Lightfoot is, is, is sort of the shitty Chicago mayor past. And then we're going to talk about the maybe future shitty Chicago mayor, Paul Vallis, who sucks so much that he was the reason I specifically wanted to do this series. But first, what do you talk about fucking Lori Lightfoot, a person who I don't I don't know. I feel like people outside of Chicago don't know much about her. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that she's like, like, has generally failed to do all the things that she was supposed to do. And, and in the kind of general sort of Democrat mayor model uh, has sucked. But I'm excited to hear the specifics. Yeah, she's a, I don't know, she's pretty, well, okay, A, the funniest thing about her is just, just Google pictures of her hats. She has just, like, an, an incredible hat game. It's just it. always appearing in just an incredible, like, she has so many hats. It's it's wild. It's just every single picture she's in, it's just, like, a random, different, wild hat. It's amazing. Yeah. But she's also kind of, in, in some sense, like, a, a kind of uniquely incompetent politician. So... Okay, so Lightfoot was elected mayor in, like, an absolute landslide in 2019, and she, she ran this very weird campaign, which was, it was based on sort of three main things. It was, one was not being a machine candidate, and this is actually very important, is that Lightfoot is not actually part of the Chicago political machine that controls, like, most politics. Why? Well, there's, there's, like, kind of, there's kind of separate parts of the machine. This is a complicated thing we're not going to fully get into here. But she's, like, not a machine candidate. She, like, kind of is an outsider in some sense. Um... And that was a big part of why people voted for her. There's another thing, which is this sort of like identity tokenism thing, which is like, I'm going to be the first black lesbian mayor of Chicago, which she is. And then the third thing she was running on was building a shit ton of police academies. (laughs) Now, I now in 2019, I was in Chicago for this election and I was like, do not fucking vote for her. She's going to build all these cop academies. And everyone was like, no, it's going to be great. She's not the machine. She's like, so she gets elected in 2019 and. This means that when she gets into office, like almost immediately 2020 happens. <laughs> and OK, so no mayor has like a good response to 2020. Um, Lightfoot's is like catastrophic. So I've talked about this a bit at the show, but but what it, 2020 in Chicago is this really, really kind of wild and weird thing. It doesn't map onto a lot of the other sort of 2020s. But like the first thing that happens basically is Chicago has this thing called I think it's I think it's the Magnificent Mile. It's something mild. I can never remember what is Magnificent or Miracle because it's a fucking bullshit tourist thing. But it's it's like this. It's Chicago's like it's like a mile of like really rich shopping districts, and the cops just lost control of it. Like people just took it. It was like fully looted. It was just this. this, this it was just this. There was this sort of incredible moment of like Chicago's working class that had been getting shit on for two hundred fucking years. Like finally stormed their way into the into just the fucking bougie part of Chicago and destroyed it, and it fucking ruled. But after that happened, Lightfoot was like, oh, shit, we can never let protesters get back there again. So she started raising the fucking drawbridges that lead that lead across <laughs> the fucking uh, river. So, so uh, like she was like she basically turned the entirety of like like that, that of that part of Chicago into a fucking fortress that you could not get onto. Amazing. I just yeah. raised, and she did this like she raised the bridges multiple fucking times. Uh, like we're, we're going to get to a, another story of her raising the bridges where it's like it's un, like. Like, she does this so many times that, like, even times where she claims she didn't do it on purpose, people are like, I, I think she raised the bridges. This is, you know, and so this is her, basically. She, she when, when she raises the bridges, she just, like, declares war, basically, on, like, half of Chicago. 
And okay, so this is like not a great thing to do if, if you are trying to be a popular politician is to just like physically declare war and like do fucking medieval fortress shit to like half half your fucking city. And so her popularity starts tanking immediately. This is in like the this is I, I'm guessing as a consequence of like the Black Lives Matter protest, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so her approval rating is like fucking absolutely dog shit. I think Oh, I'm trying to find I, I, I should have looked this up earlier. I meant to and I forgot. I think her approval rating was like thirty percent when she left office. It might even Oof. be lower than that. Yeah, so but you know, but but she 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 does this kind of unique thing where she basically goes around and alienates like every single voting block in the city. I guess before we get to this, we should get we should get to how she pissed off the cops. Because one of her big things when she came into office was she was trying to sort of like do this alliance with the police. But instead of her sort of actually like forming this, you know, she she was trying to form a sort of center right wing base, right? She's trying to both sort of play this kind of like identity tokenism thing and then also build a base with the cops. But A, the cops are racist. And B, okay, do do you two know the story about the Chicago Columbus statue? Uh, I don't think I – wait, is that one of the ones that got taken down? Sort of. I think this is one of the ones that – so in 2020, I wrote a story about how to tear down statues and uh, then became the guy that everybody sent pictures of statues getting torn down to for a while. So I'm sure I've seen it. Amazing. Yeah, it was great. Ben Shapiro had a whole fucking seizure about it. Uh, We got in lots of trouble with with, uh, various federal agencies. But yeah, it was a very amazing (laughs) story. (laughs) I did. Don't... uh, don't affiliate link to the ingredients to things which may or may not be illegal if you combine those ingredients in your story. So true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, many popular mechanics editors have tried this. It was great. I was on Russia Today, uh, uh, not 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 with my knowledge. But yeah, tell us about this. Tell us about this other statue, Mia. Okay, so there is a giant like statue thing sitting on a like sitting on this big column that was made in 1933. And it's this, it's this giant statue of Christopher Columbus. Um, also on this statue, so there there, there there's like a series of of like important Italian people like on the column. One of these things, one of the people who was depicted on this column, like very much seems to be Benito Mussolini holding a bunch of fascists. <laughs> what the fuck? That's cool. Now, Why the sculptor's the sculptor's son denies this, but this was made in 1933. It really looks yeah, like yeah, Benito yeah, Mussolini, yeah, yeah. and he is definitely holding fascists. So. Uh, all right, this, this statue, this is like in like the middle of the fucking city, right? In like this park mm-hmm. in the middle of the city. Um, and this became the, the so, okay, so in, in, in 2020 in Chicago, the way the protests work is you, you have like the first initial like phase where the cops like lose control of the city and then the cops kind of like retake it over the next few days. And there's a kind of lull, but then it starts, another like sort of wave of it starts back up again, like around specifically around this statue. And there's this whole thing that cops are trying to keep it up. And there's this whole thing where like, there's like, like rings of activists, like surrounding a group of cops standing around the statue, like throwing shit at them. And it fucking ruled. And eventually the city's like, okay, we're going to, we're just going to take down the fucking statue. And this was a Lightfoot thing, but, but this pissed off the cops. And specifically, so we've talked about this before on the show, but like, this is one of the sort of unique things about Chicago is that Chicago has like, yeah, I guess the technical term is like white ethnic like groups that like do shit. And one of those things is like there's like an Italian American cop association that is very powerful. And the Italian American <laughs> cop association 
is like we like we will keep the statue at all costs. This is like our fucking uh, guy. Yeah, yeah. Like I uh, we're yeah and 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 Lightfoot is like you guys. If you guys don't take this statue down, people are gonna fucking like burn the Miracle Mile again. And she gets to this giant fight of them, and these emails eventually get. I, th- I think I can't remember if they. I think they get released as part of a court case or something. But these these emails come out that it like. Lightfoot is yelling that she has the biggest balls of anyone on the table. She's gonna put her balls on the table because she's trying to like keep the cops alive. And so she she gets in this giant fight and just pisses off all of the cops in the city. So she's she she has pissed off like like in, from 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 the, the the initial wave of protests, the drawbridge stuff. She has pissed off like anyone who's even sort of vaguely center left and anti racist, and like a huge proportion of the city's black population. And then she like systematically she's now pissed off like the sort of like white ethnic cop groups who are also very powerful. And then she does something like, like really genuinely unforgivable and horrific, which is in 2021, Chicago police shot 13 year old Adam Toledo. Here's from a Chicago paper called the tribe at a press conference after the shooting, Mayor Louis Lightfoot vowed to find the people responsible for, quote, putting a gun in the hands of Toledo, who Chicago police and prosecutors insisted was armed. So, okay, they shoot this kid who is fucking 13 years old. His name is Adam Toledo. And immediately the cops, the prosecutors and the mayor said that he's armed. They're going to find the person who put the gun in his hand. So two and a half weeks later, the uh, video comes out and it turns out that not only was Adam Toledo not armed, the cops shot him while he was while his hands were up while complying with their instructions. I think I've seen this body cam. Yeah, this is yeah, bad. it's fucking awful. And then like two year, two days later, they killed another guy. Oof. And like th- there were there was a, there was there was, like, there was another round of like huge protests. I mean, they, and they weren't as big as 2020 ones, but like there was another round of like really big protests in this. And Lightfoot was you know, like actively involved in a conspiracy to lie about this fucking 13 year old kid who was killed in cold blood. And so this pisses off like this, this, this like basically means that her, her support among like the Latino population drops to basically zero because she fucking accused a 13 year old kid of being a gang, an armed gang member. And then he got fucking after he got shot by the cops. So, Oh, the other fun thing about this is so our our like prosecutor, Kim Fox, is like there's like this whole thing about how she's like a progressive prosecutor and like the rights trying to unseat her. Uh, none of the fucking officers involved in this or the other shooting two days later were ever charged with anything. After they again shot, like killed in cold blood, a 13 year old kid with his hands up. Now, the the sort of regular Chicago right hates her because she's both black and a lesbian. And there's some like We'll talk about this a bit when we get to Vallis, but there's just genuinely unhinged, horrifying sort of like racism and like homophobia and like she's getting basically like splash damage transphobia from it because of how racist these people are. And so but that, that means that like, you know, she has like no support, right? She she managed to get she, yeah. like she, she manages to get into a fight with Chicago's like normally pretty conservative, like black caucus and the black caucus gets so pissed at her that they forced through a police reform bill that has established <laughs> like oversight committees <laughs> just like <laughs> a rare win and so 
you know, there, there, it, uh, like uh, on, on February 28th, there's an election and all of the sort of like everyone in the city of Chicago is like, she's fucked. Like she's a unique, she's yeah. a uniquely unpopular candidate. She, everyone fucking hates her. She has systematically pissed off every single possible voting block in the entire city of Chicago. And she loses. And, you know, there's this whole sort of media junket that happens where everyone's like, this is like a referendum on crime in Chicago. And it's like, no, no, it's not. Like, everyone just hates Lightfoot because she sucks. And she sucks in, like, a unique combination of ways that pisses off everyone who can possibly vote in the city. And so she gets 16% of the vote, which I think 16% of the vote is, like, the actual sort of, like, top limit cap of the number of people in Chicago who genuinely like her. Like, I, th- I, th- I think it's exactly 15%, like 60% of the city, and there's fucking no one else. She, so she comes in third. Uh, it's also very funny. She spends the entire, ele- like, a, b- a bunch of her money running campaign ads, like, against a guy who comes in fourth. <laughs> instead of the other two people. <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. Completely misses a mark. Yeah, and so the, the, the man who came in second, who is, uh, on, on, on the, by the time this episode comes out, the election will be fucking tomorrow. Um, the, the person who came in second in that vote is Brandon Johnson, who's a progressive candidate. He's backed by like the teachers union. He's like, fine. He's like as good as you're going to get for a mayor. Although I will remind people that like it, John, John, Johnson is a much better candidate. than The other fucking guy we're going to talk about. But uh, we need to talk about a little bit about the limits of electoral politics. And like, you know, I'm, I'm just going to point out here that like Nepal, for example, routinely elects Maoist governments. And like, do you know how do you know how much Maoism those guys do? Like fucking none. There is no Maoism happening. Right. Like- there were some cool <clears throat> socialist mayors in Spain who led the population of the city to expropriate the landowners around the city in the 1930s. Yeah, but that was the 1930s. This, yeah, is, now, this had- is now 20. Those are old. Those people's fucking grandchildren are like maybe around. But yeah, like you're you're not going to get, you know, like uh, we're not going to get a socialist city off of this. On the other hand, the person who comes in first, who Brandon Johnson will be facing tomorrow when you listen to this, is a demon in human form. He is neoliberalism's liberalism, bag man. He is the fucking reactionary Republican dog of the, of the Chicago political machine. And that man's name is Paul Vallis. And as 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 Vallis would fucking want, we are going to talk about him after we go to ads. All right, we're back from ads. We're here to talk about Paul Vallis, just the worst guy. Okay, so Paul Vallis sucks ass. Um, the, the thing he's most famous for sucking ass for is for being the school privatization guy. So we're, we're going to start with his, the beginning of his sort of political career is in, 2000, in, in 1995, he gets appointed as the CEO of Chicago Public Schools, and he holds that position from 1995 to 2001. Now, okay, so there's there's a few things that that he like really likes. One is insulating schools entirely and, and insulating any mechanism and any sort of like part of how a school works from any kind of community democratic control. Chicago used to have these sort of like democratic councils that could like do stuff within the school and Vowels is like fuck that, we're getting rid of all that shit, like absolutely not. Um the other thing he loves is charter schools. So we, we, we should explain what a charter school is. Yeah. So, okay, uh, the, the way a charter school works is that instead of, like, the state or, like, the city or a town or, like, a local government running a school, which is the way that schools normally work, you instead give out a charter to either, like, technically an NGO or just a for-profit company. And then that company takes a bunch of tax money, like, takes tax money that would have gone to a public school and then uses it to run their own fucking school. 
so like it, it is it, it is privatization that they've relabeled like charter quote unquote because if they actually called it privatization to schools people would fucking hate it and Vallis loves this shit this is this is what he spends most of his time across like on multiple continents doing schools bullshit like attempting to push for um the other specific thing that he really likes this and this this is like this is sort of the the, the Paul Vallis signature like classic thing is military academies. They used to like basically not be military academies in Chicago. And Vallis is like, we're going to open so many fucking military academies. And so no he does. Way. And these are, these are like regular. And the thing is, okay, like there are sort of like disciplinary quote unquote military academies, which is like you get sent there instead of prison. These are like, just like normal yeah. schools that are like quote unquote military academies. But these schools, like they're, they're barely schools. Like, like there, there, there are a lot of people who went to these schools who, in multiple cities, and we'll, we'll get into more of this sort of later when we get to Philly, but, like, people will go to these schools and, like, their textbooks have pages torn out of them, and, like, they're <laughs> Which bad. pages? Which pages, man? I, you know, here's the thing, right? You you would think this is, like, a like a kind of, like, Republican-style, like, uh, uh, we're taking out the pages that talk about, like, Columbus being bad. Like, no, 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 just yeah. random fucking, like, just pages torn out yeah. of it because they, they, these schools don't have any fucking money. Like, they don't have extracurriculars. Like, they just, they just, like, don't have sports. They just don't have, like, anything to fucking do. Um, and then this is another thing with charter schools. So, all right, if, if you want to, like, be a regular teacher, you have to have, like, teaching teaching certificates. Right, uh, if so you work you at a charter school, yeah. So I, I think that it, the standards depend on the state. Some of them, I, th- I think Illinois is, like, two-thirds of the teachers have to have teaching certificates. But that means that a lot of kids are being taught by teachers with no teaching certificates, which is, like... You know, I, that, that, te- teaching, in, it turns out, is not, in fact, easy enough that you can just put a random person there who doesn't know how to do it and, you know, like, have kids be taught correctly. <laughs> I thought and these military Santos academies, gonna... <laughs> these military academies, they have teachers who just, like, don't fucking teach, right? Like, they're, they're, they're just a complete shit show. But he opens a bunch of these. And, but, okay, and the, the, the other big thing that Valus is supposed to, and this is the thing, all, all the people who like Valus would do this thing where they're like, he's like a budget wizard, and he's like the guy, he's like the technocrat, like, smart policy want guy who you bring in to, like, like bail out a school district that's underwater financially. And, oh boy, oh boy, is that not true. He, okay, so there, there, there's, there's a very good report called Passing the Buck, which is written by the Action Center on Race and the Economy, or Acre, which I recommend people, look, genuinely, people should go read this. It's like 12 pages long. It's very short. And like, a, a, like it's not even 12, like three of those pages are citations. Um, and th- they, they wrote a report on, on Vallis' time in various school districts. And here's some of the shit that he did to make it look like he had his, balance, his budget balanced. So, all right, let's, let's talk about his pension scheme. I feel like I actually should explain how pensions work because like nobody fucking has them anymore. So a pension is a thing where like you, the worker, or in this case, like Chicago teachers, you take some of your current pay and instead of taking the money now, it gets taken out of your paycheck and put into towards a pension fund to fund your retirement. And then this fund is invested in the stock market to get returns to pay out pensions that like support you when you retire. Right. Yeah. So in 1999, Vallis was like, oh, hey, the Chicago pension system is funded. So we're going to take the teacher's money and use it to pay other budget shortfalls. (laughs) <laughs> great so this is good um anyways uh after he does this for for 13 consecutive years chicago stops paying into its pension system altogether 
<laughs> and the result of this is a $9.6 billion hole in the pension system that Chicago has to, like, pay off. And this is a huge part of, like, where the sort of modern, like, budget deficits in Chicago come yeah. from. Like, things that are used to, like, justify shutting schools down is that, like, they just didn't pay into this. They just stopped paying into the pensions and instead took the money that they're supposed to go to teachers and use it to, like, make their budgets look clean. So if she... If he had just done this, it would have been bad enough. But, but, Vallis is like, is a very, very specific kind of like neoliberal technocrat dipshit. And that kind of neoliberal technocrat dipshit is the, the, the extremely interested in financial instruments guy who was like a kind of person that I think, I think we see less of these days because most, not the modern version of this are like crypto people, right? But, Back in like the 90s and 2000s, there were a bunch of guys whose things were like really, really convoluted financial instruments and everyone thought they were fucking geniuses. Um, now, now, if, if, if you if you were alive in 2008, you know where this is going. But Vallis, the second thing he does to sort of like, like, quote unquote, balance his budget sheet is he takes out the government equivalent of a payday loan. <laughs> so here, here's here's a passing the buck quote. Vallis literally borrowed against Chicago school children's futures when he took out a $666 million in capital appreciation bonds. Also, I, when, I, when I said he was like a, like a demon, he took out $666 million. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Went with the satanic line. Yeah, yeah, we're, do, we're doing the satanic panic, but for mm-hmm. uh, this guy who fucking yep. sucks. So, yeah, uh, he took out the loans and capital appreciation bonds, a form of debt in which the borrower pays nothing for several years, but then has to pay very large sums to make up for skipped payments. (laughs) A capital appreciation bond, CAB, is a long term bond with compounding interest on which the borrower is not permitted to make any principal or interest payments for many years. But the interest still... It, it yeah, accrues. It's accrues. But you're not allowed that to pay. Like it. A, why would we? Why would you take that? Why would you? Why would you do that? That seems like a really bad decision. Oh, it's a terrible. It's a terrible decision. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big so, money guy. But Vallis's assumption was that like, okay, well, we don't have any money now, but property values will continue to go up and just, just like, keep going up forever. <laughs> so we can pay this bond back when we have money from higher from property taxes and in in, in uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish this thing on on these these just dog shit bonds. In this way, it is similar to a negative amortization mortgage in which the outstanding principal actually grows over time because the unpaid interest gets tacked on to the amount owed in compounds. <laughs> yeah, very amusingly, uh, California was doing something similar to this with, uh, with restitution payments recently or some some place in california were and at least in one case that i looked into for a story i wrote it was it was ruled illegal under the eighth amendment oh my god <laughs> <laughs> a cruel and unusual interest payment there's, but it's there, good there, to see that chicago is doing it to oh, itself we did fucking bo- yeah there's actually a funny story about this that, like one of the side stories of this is that the guy who's running the school system in uh california like gets this same offer from like bond salesman people and he's like no what the fuck this is the dumbest <laughs> thing i've ever seen <laughs> but valis does this valis is gonna do this in multiple cities so i'm, I'm gonna finish reading this thing because yeah. of this structure borrowers often end up paying extraordinarily high interest rates over the lifetime of the bonds former california state treasurer bill lockney called cabs the school district equivalent of a payday loan so the result of this is that out of the, the $666.2 million, right, that Vallis takes out, they pay $1.5 billion in interest. 
The interest rate over the lifetime of this bond is 223%. Good lord. This is the guy who's supposed to be like the really smart technocrat reformer yeah. guy who understands financial stuff, who you bring in to like solve school districts, and he took out a loan with 223% fucking interest. <laughs> This is this is the kind of interest rate that, in the words of David Graeber, were once reserved for organized crime, and now is. And, you know, normally, normally this kind of loan is like a thing. It's like this is like a very predatory sort of like yeah. This is, this is like a predatory banking thing. Valis did this to himself on purpose because <laughs> he's dumb. And I mean, also like he's trying. I mean, and part of part of the other sort of undercurrent of this, it's not just that he's really stupid. It's that he's trying to pay off his buddies in the in in the finance sector. Yeah. And, you know, this is the other part of the story, right? It's like all of these all these school districts just get fucking looted to pay off these like fucking stupid ass hedge funds. And then he just bounces somewhere else and leaves them to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so I I talked a bit earlier about how like Valis's assumption on these bonds was like, well, it'll be fine because, well, the housing markets will keep going up forever. But then 2008 happens. And this has a bunch of effects. One of the big ones is that uh, Valis was taking out bonds with variable interest rates. Oh no! <laughs> now, okay, we have talked about this on this show before, right? There are entire country, there are like entire like like multinational political movements that don't exist. There are entire countries who fucking don't have manufacturing sectors anymore. Like there are there are places where the life expectancy fell by twenty years because their 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 fucking leaders took out these kind of of like yeah. variable interest rate loans and got destroyed when the interest rate spikes. And guess what happened in Chicago? Interest rate spikes. And, okay, so Valis's successors look at this and are like, this is the stupidest fucking, you know. Well, but, okay, so Valis's successor, by the way, is Arnie Duncan, who's the guy that Obama puts in charge of, uh, of, of uh, the Department of uh, Education. And Arnie Duncan is like, okay, do you know how we're going to solve the problem of these, these, the, the, the risk from these adjustable rate interest rates? Credit default swabs. Oh God! So, yeah. all right, for, I, I'm not going to explain how a credit default yeah. swap works because it's fucking annoying as hell. But credit default swaps are one of the thing, are like one of the like very specific financial instruments that are um, that are like specifically responsible for the 2008 collapse. Yes. And now these technically aren't credit default swaps, right? These these are technically what are called interest default swap or like interest swaps. And they're, but they're exactly the same thing as a credit, as a credit default swap, but instead of credit, it's interest. So the, 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 okay. the underlying asset, right, is like a, is a bond and not like a loan or whatever, but otherwise it's exactly the same thing. And this, this man, you know, and the, these, these swaps have this thing where like, if you can't pay, you get these like unbelievably high, like fees that start happening. So uh, but when, when these bonds blow up, uh, they, they managed to cost, they, they managed to cost Chicago another $31 million dollars. Because their credit default swaps Jesus just blew Christ. up. <laughs> so, all right. So this guy's in 2002. In 2002, he ran for governor against Rob fucking Blagojevich. Who is Rob Blago- uh, Bl- Blago- Who is Rob Blagojevich? You just do the first syllable and then let your lips take the rest. It's just like a And Valis sucked so much that Rob Blagojevich is able to outflank him on the left. By 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 running against him, saying, "Hey, look at all these schools he privatized," and so he gets clobbered in the primaries by Rob fucking Blagojevich, the man who. Okay, so I this is a, we, we will cover this one day fully on the show because it's really funny. 
But Rob Ru- Blagojevich is the man most famous for getting arrested for trying to sell Obama's Senate seat. <laughs> like, he, he tried Would to sell it? a Senate seat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's, oh, he's amazing. He's now just on Tucker talking about political persecution. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, great. extremely funny. Oh, yeah, he was on yesterday, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> talking, talking about, about Trump's being persecuted. Trump's in the yeah. <laughs> How he was persecuted first and now Trump is being persecuted yeah. too. Yeah. It's yeah, amazing. Perfect. It's great. Really, really the canary in the coal mine of <laughs> <laughs> grifters. Hey, of grifting politicians. Look, Garrison. Look, if they if they can go after Rob Blagojevich for trying to sell Obama's Senate seat, they could go after you for trying to sell Barack Obama's Senate seat. <laughs> That's true. You know who else is trying to sell Barack Obama's Senate seat? Uh, the products and services that support this very podcast. No, they're illegally not allowed to do that. None of them would ever commit a crime. I, Under any circumstances, I still Ooh. think I uh, I I think a fair number of these corporations probably engage in some some that, sort of political that's lobbying. True. Yeah, that's true. But I I, I, I don't. They're think trying any to of them buy him a Senate seat, Garrison. That's, that's yeah, totally that's, that's different. different. That's different. Not You're the right. same. Not You're the right. same. Totally fine. Thanks, Ronald Reagan. All right, we're back, and we're now we're we're now we're now sending Vallis to our. I don't. I don't actually know if Chicago and Philadelphia are sister cities, but like I think they should be. I don't know. I'm. I, I am very in favor of the Chicago Philadelphia alliance. Same vibe. Yeah. So well, he, they they both stood in for Gotham City in the Christopher Nolan trilogy. So <laughs> it's true. There you go. You're doing a you Bagman know, reference again. There's there's a whole. There are like so many different specific. David Graeber writes about this. Like there there are so many different like parts of places where they filmed like the dark night where people tried to protest and got arrested yes. for blocking the road like this happened in multiple <laughs> cities <sighs> yeah no one wants the city to turn into la so you have to stand up against that shit immediately <laughs> yeah you do not let it happen in your hood yeah it could it could happen here <laughs> <laughs> okay so after valis gets clobbered in 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 the mayoral race uh, he gets brought in by Philadelphia to try to like fix their school system, and he uh, excuse me. His plan to do this is by uh, doing a bunch of military academies again, and then doing also doing <laughs> charter schools. And oh, so I, I should I should explain like his other sort of so the the big sort of rationale thing behind charter schools is school choice, which is this. Oh yeah. Thing that was specifically invented as a way to let racist parents avoid integration. Yeah. This is like goes along with the invention of the homeschooling movement. We've talked about this in other episodes. But he's like a huge, like, Vallis to this day is a giant, like, school choice guy. Um, And, you know, but the other thing, the other thing about Vallis that I, I don't think people realize that much is he, he, even though he's a Republican a lot of the time, like, he kind of flips back and forth between being a Democrat, being a Republican. But he's, he's just, like, after he loses to Rob... Or even even sort of before that, like he he is an actual sort of Chicago machine guy, and because he's a Chicago machine guy, when he gets into Philly, the stuff that he he starts doing this stuff where he like he'll just like in like he he takes over the school district and like fires a bunch of people and like installs his cronies and in all these departments and all these people are getting like he's like buying off people with budget allocations, and he starts selling off buildings to raise money. So he sells off like the district headquarters in order to buy like a more expensive district headquarters. And here's a quote from the book Not Paid for Us, which is a really, really great book about sort of the the history of racism in education in Philadelphia. 
And this this is a quote from a uh, longtime activist, Leroy Simmons. Before I start reading this, the, the district headquarters was called 21st and Parkway. There was doors in 21st and Parkway worth $1 million. Them big brass doors in the front, those doors were worth $1 million with all the carving on them. People don't know how much they got for it to this day. I can't get an answer about how much did you sell that building for? Where the money went? The school district sold 21st and Parkway in a package with Kennedy Center. There were brand new trucks parked at Kennedy Center. They had forgot were there. <laughs> there was a printing press in the Kennedy Center that could print all new magazines and they never used. There were books and calculators and every time I went through there, there were boxes of unused stuff in the Kennedy Center. And nobody knew. And they sold that and the contents in the package with 21st and Parkway. Nobody knew how much that was. There was some art that was priceless on the walls at 21st and Parkway. No one can find the art. <laughs> there were priceless pe- pieces of art hanging in schools across the city. And all that was sold in a package and nobody saw where it went. <laughs> Totally normal. <laughs> yeah. So like all and this is this is again, this is like this is classic Chicago corruption shit, right? Like we're not gonna say how much we sold this building for, we're not gonna say who it, who we sold it to. Like we're 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 gonna build a more expensive building. Uh, and you know, if you look into the if you look into who the contractors are, it's like always someone's uncle or like brother or some shit. Um there's just you know, like there's just printing presses that are gone, like priceless works of art just vanish. It's like this is this is like, you know, it's sort of inc- inc- incredible sort of Chicago political machine stuff. Um, and, and this goes into a, a thing about, I think, the Chicago political machine that that is really interesting, which is that these people are like, on the one hand, they're unbelievably corrupt. On the other hand, a lot of them are sort of real, like, hardline, like, doctrinaire neoliberals. And this is, I mean, this is sort of the thing with Arnie Duncan, right? Like, like Obama actually comes out of this machine, too, when he's a lot more sort of, like, doctrinaire about this stuff than the sort of modern people are. And, you know, and Val, Val, Val is just like one of the, the, the sort of like big guys here. And, you know, so he, he's really, really in favor of charter schools. And so they get enormous amounts of money. Um, he also does this thing. He, he yeah, th- this is um, also from Not Pay For Us. He funnels money into just like a shit ton of NGOs in order to like do education programming or whatever. And so there's a sort of constellation that forms of these like you have, you have these corporations doing like education stuff like running schools and you have these like nonprofits running like the like the education material and it's it's this sort of like this this is sort of arch neoliberal thing where instead of the state administering a service what you have is this like basically a bunch of like contracting grifters who come in and suck up all of the money and then provide absolutely dog shit services (laughs) now i'm gonna read another quote from this book because the people they are paying these contracts to are fucking wild um, the, the the SRC is like one of the the, the bodies that's in charge of uh, like one of the state bodies that's in charge of like the, the the Philadelphia school district. One of the SRC's most problematic contracts was with K twelve Inc for three million dollars to quote provide academic and curriculum support, access to K 12s online curriculum and assessments, academic enrichment via summer and extended day programs, professional development, teacher planning and training materials, and community involvement activities. Conservative radio talk show host William Bennett was the founder of K-12 Inc. He had been an advisor to former presidents Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. During a show in 2005, he said the following, and this is a direct quote. If you want to reduce crime, you could, if that was your sole purpose, you could abort every black baby in this country and and your crime rate would go down. That would be an impossibly ridiculous and morally reprehensible thing to do, but your crime rate would go down. (laughs) 
So they paid this guy three million fucking dollars to, <laughs> like, to bolster Vallis's uh, pro-choice uh, credentials. I, I assume I, I, this is this, this is the most pro-choice thing I've ever seen from him. <laughs> Is is the genocide guy? Because it's, because, <laughs> yeah. because it's genocide. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. eugenics guy. Yeah. 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 Well, you see, they all have a uh, they all have a weakness. <sighs> that is. Uh, uh, has anyone looked at the curriculum that they're providing? <clears throat> I'm. I, here's the thing. It's unclear to me that they ever like actually really provided much of anything. It does sound like a like if you were going to make up a company to grift out of the education system, K twelve Inc. would be a great name. Yeah, and and, then, and that's that's the thing about like all these charter schools too, right? It's like a, like okay, so like there are some for profit co- corporations who do charter school stuff and they stick in the charter school business because they they decide that's how they want to make their money. A lot of these things come in, take a state contract, the school immediately implodes and then leave, and then they just walk out with several million dollars. And this is like a, this is a recurring pattern over and over again with charter schools. Um, he also brings in Teach for America, who is this like just genuinely evil organization that tries to break teachers unions by recruiting these like incredibly idealistic and naive young college grads and like throwing them into like into failing schools as this thing to like, ah, you're going to like go serve the community and like, uh, uh, you know, you're, you'll learn on the job and you'll you'll become an educator and you're like helping these disadvantaged kids. And it's a disaster. These 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 people, the people who do this, have no fucking idea how to teach because they, they you know they don't have teaching certificates, right? They're just like college grads. And any yeah. of you have been around college grads, like you you think those people are responsible enough to fucking <laughs> teach kids? Like Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah, I remember that was like a big thing. Like I don't know if it still happens or not, but I can remember writing. Oh, it like still does. A, yeah, reference letters for students like 10, 15 years ago for that. Yeah, like I, I mean, I, I know I had to like talk out classmates of mine like out of doing it because we were like, you are doing, you are doing union busting, and also this will destroy your life and the life of the children you have to teach. Yeah, it's a very strange system that yeah takes someone who, by virtue of having any degree, is is automatically an educator. But to be fair, that is how universities work as well. Yeah, you get get your master's degree, and then they're like, well, fuck it, get in there, well, <laughs> give I mean, it your they'll, best they'll shot. Just, they'll just give you grad students with no degrees, right? Like that's that's a thing too. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, and, and you know, to 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 get it, to get another sense of like the the other thing that's happening here is is he has this really Valas has this really really racist kind of like we need to like enforce discipline in schools thing, and so they have all these and this happens in Chicago too. They have these like zero tolerance policies that have done I mean irreparable damage to like tens of thousands of kids. Um, I'm I'm gonna read I'm gonna read a thing from Tribe about uh, Philadelphia quote. Test results were posted on data walls in the school buildings to show which classes were making the most progress. Whoa. It was humiliating, said Grill, who's a teacher. A lot of our kids were left behind, were behind and a lot, of, a lot of our kids suffered trauma, and trauma affects the way you learn. So they were behind, they weren't on grade level, and it made them feel like failures. I hated giving those tests. Wow. Yeah. 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 People like to be wrong about George Orwell, but that, that, that's some Orwellian shit yeah, right there. It's just like... And like these are like fucking yeah like these are like these are literally children like you are you are publicly shaming people who are like twelve. It's just it's just horrible. Yeah, that that, like we've known for a very long time that that doesn't work when you're educating kids. Like I have done pedagogy training and get no no one with any intent to actually help kids is shaming kids in the classroom or or young people or, or anyone of any age for that matter. 
I just checked out what K-12 Inc. are doing. It's great. Uh, they're now offering online high school. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can go to oh, the Faith no. Prep Academy and oh, no. uh, develop Christian character. And, oh. uh, find yeah yeah this is great uh this is this is what i this is what our youth need <sighs> yeah it sucks so um the other thing again we i'm gonna keep circling around with this because it happens a bunch of times but, like again valis's whole thing is supposed to be about like about balancing budgets right uh in 2007 by the time he's like like at the near the end of his like time in philly He's fucked everything up so badly that that for in in like just one year of the budget, Philly schools were seventy three million dollars in the hole. <clears throat> now the, the the thing about this is this is where most stories about Vallis's time in 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 Philadelphia end. But wait, there's fucking more. So that $73 million shortfall was was the one-year shortfall, right? Remember back in Chicago where Vallis's like variable interest rate bonds like blew up in the school's faces? Um this time, Vallis is the guy directly who did the credit default swaps. And uh, these these the interest rates on these things are locked in literally for decades. And just like like some of these aren't expiring to like 2031. Right. And just so far, they've cost one hundred and sixty one million dollars. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And test test scores fucking go down under him. It's a oh, shit yeah. show. Yeah. And so 2007, they kick him out because they're like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, the place they kick him out to is is, and you're you're not gonna like this post Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans. Oh, for fuck's sake! Yeah, what? Yeah, why? Why do we have to inflict like the fail sons of neoliberalism on the people of New Orleans? It's gonna get worse, by the way. Okay, great. Yeah. Um. So th- this is really bad, right? Uh, New Orleans now. Okay, so I think there's there there's some kind of controversy about how exactly you calculate this at the very least 63 out of the 66 like new orleans like big like sorry let me let me rephrase it at the very least 63 out of the 66 like schools that they run like at the very least like that that are directly run by the state are charter schools um there's three more that are also charter schools but are kind of administrated by the district so there, there is a huge debate as to whether there are technically any public schools left in, 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 in fucking New Orleans. Jesus. Yeah, they fired like, and this, this, this was, this was before Vallis came into office. But in New Orleans, they fired the entire every teacher in the fucking city. They fired all the union, literally all the union teachers, replaced them with non-union people. Um, Vallis comes in and uh, starts implementing some shit that is just like, I like prison camp shit oh god uh, here's from here's from tribe again according to Bygard, a lot of kids were arrested for quote disruption of a school process if they showed up late to class and refused to be kicked out for tardiness and again they are being arrested <laughs> for refuse yeah for, for wanting to stay in school yeah black kids uh, black girls were arrested for having quote rat tail combs which have long oh, sharp handles sake. for braiding hair yeah in one instance, Bygard said a six-year-old student was expelled and charged with possession and distribution of a controlled substance because he brought Tums to school and gave them to his classmates <laughs> thinking they were candy. <laughs> what the fuck? They charged yeah. a six-year-old! Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, the, the levels of fucking cruelty that have to exist. Like, a cop has to see a six-year-old and not be like, oh, lol, those are Tums. Like, the kids probably shouldn't eat too many of those. They Let me go candy. tell them. 
I didn't know yeah. they were candy because he's six. Yeah. Six. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Fucking <sighs> hell. Just like, just, just jetty widely, like, uh, abhorrently evil shit. Yeah. See, this is like, it, maybe now is a good time to point out that, like, uh, in the wake of yet another terrible school shooting, people will want to put more cops in schools. This is what happens when we put yeah. cops in schools, right? They brutalize our fucking children. Yeah. And, and like, it's not, it, yeah, like, the state doing violence to children is not the way we protect children. Yeah. That's what I want to say. The more your school represents the, 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 the levels of law enforcement that are in a prison camp, the more the actual experience of the children will become like prison camps. <laughs> yes. Become a moment. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also just literally, I mean, that's, God. I, <laughs> I love to go to the Panopticon High School, Garrison. What are you talking about? I just the, the Panopticon High School where if you don't if you don't get kicked out of your fucking class for being late, they arrest you. Foucault moment again. Yeah. And just so speaking speaking of disciplining and punishing. So these charter schools, they, they do a thing that charter schools always do. Right. Which is sometimes if you know, if, if you look at people who talk about educational reform, they'll be like charter schools have like really great like test numbers. And a that's just like not true. Right. That they're only looking at the, at the really good charter schools. But, you know, here's the thing. If you give a public school the amount of money that a really good charter school has, it will also be a really good school. But th- but there's a second yeah. thing that charter schools can do that other schools can't, which is that charter schools can just fucking kick students out. And this is one of the ways that they, they maintain their test yeah. numbers is they just kick out kids over and over again. You don't do who aren't initially doing well on tests. They don't have to teach them and like bother to improve their test scores. And in New Orleans, they get in trouble because the kids they were kicking out were kids with disabilities who they were illegally, Fuck. yeah, who they were illegally not, like, giving individual education plans to. And also they were, okay, this is everything, right? These charter schools are all run by different private corporations. And so there's no system of tracking whether, when a kid gets kicked out, whether they can actually get it, go to another school. So they're just leaving these disabled kids, like, in the fucking wind with no school to go to. And this, this, this was so illegal that after a lawsuit, like, I, I think it might still be going to this day. It was going like 2014. Like the school, the, the Philadelphia school system was like under receivership by the federal government because they committed so many crimes against disabled students. Jesus Christ. That is brutal. Yeah. It's awful. Ah, fuck. No, sorry. This stuff makes me sick. I've worked in education yeah. for a lot of my adult life and this shit makes me furious. Yeah. I, I, I just want to, so what, what you two to guess, where, where do you think they sent Paul Vallis next after he got kicked out of, I, I try of, of trying to run, uh, of, of New Orleans. Austin, did they send him to set up a uh, finishing school for girls in Kabul? No, but uh, uh, similar similar vibes. Oh, for fuck's sake. It's not, is it outside the continental US? Yes. Uh, it's not Iraq? No. Uh, Puerto Rico? Is it Haiti? No, but closer. After it's Haiti. The earthquake. It's oh, Haiti after oh, the earthquake. Oh, yep. Right. Yep. So now we've talked about this before on the show. In 2010, there was a just unbelievably heart-wrenchingly catastrophic earthquake. It killed 220,000 people and also destroyed like almost every building in Haiti. And this kicks off phase two of the UN occupation of the country. We we talked about this in our episodes on Lula and Bolsonaro. This is is when the UN guys from Nepal bring in uh, cholera and infect a bunch of the population, right? Yeah. So right after this happens, so the US just like sends Marines in, right? And no no one in Haiti asked for it. We just just fucking invade. Um, And they bring in Paul Vallis, like specifically Paul Vallis and also Arnie Duncan, who's again, Obama's fucking uh, education secretary, gets bring in to rebuild the Haitian school system on the New Orleans model. 
Now, okay, weirdly, if they had actually implemented New Orleans model, it would have been an improvement because the, the, the way the Haitian school system worked was it was 90% private and the tuition was 40% yeah. of someone's annual budget, like, like a family's annual budget. Yeah, I got so, lots of friends in Haiti who couldn't afford to pay for school yeah, or went broke it's, trying. It's fucking horrible. Yeah. Um, Vallis is supposed to like change this, right? He gets brought in. They bring in the Clinton Foundation. And instead, what happens is the Clinton Foundation buys a bunch <laughs> of trailers to use as schools for the from from specifically the same people who got in trouble for selling formaldehyde ridden trailers to FEMA during Katrina. <laughs> and then, <laughs> Good stuff. you know, OK, another, another thing that I I I. I can't emphasize enough. Were they called the Grift Trailer Inc. or something? Yeah, they fucking suck. Well, but also, also, even if the trailers were good, right? There, there's a real issue with trying to use trailers to teach kids in a place that is hot. Yeah, which is that it is a hundred fucking degrees inside these trailers. These trailers are made of metal, so if you touch the side of the thing, you get burned. Kids, people, people who like teachers who were taught there routinely talk about how like every kid in their every kid in their fucking class was having heat stroke. And they were just like giving them painkillers for heat stroke because that's all they could do. Jeez. And yeah, you know, it is punishingly hot if you haven't yeah. like, worked in that part of the world a lot. And it is. It's hard yeah. enough without being in a tin can. Yeah. And no, Valus's fucking education form, they don't fucking work. Like, they don't do shit. Right. Mm-hmm. Haiti's education system is still fucked. Uh, despite all the money the Clinton Foundation and like all these experts got paid, like it's still really bad. Uh, Valus, like specifically like very specifically defended the use of trailers as like a thing you teach people in. Um, yeah. And you know, this stuff all continues to the, 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 the present day. The U S has been trying to find another excuse to trying to find a way to do another intervention in Haiti. So he's still on the new Orleans job, I think while he's doing this Haiti job. And then he takes another job in Chile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why? I I don't know the people people get well because because the the uh, the, the Inter American Development Bank gives him half a million dollars to run two thousand schools there. So again, he's now he's now splitting his time between oh, New Orleans, God. Haiti, and Chile, and it's it's almost impossible to find. I, I spent a lot of time looking. It's like it's really hard to find like anything about what actually he was doing in Chile. What we do know is when when he got there, he was met by the enormous two thousand eleven uh, Chilean student protests. Which then later turned into the 2013 Chilean student protests, which turned into the 2015 Chilean student protests, which turned into the 2019 Chilean student protests. <laughs> so you know, Respect. I mean, I, I just, I just want to, like you, you. It is possible to run Paul Vallis out of your country. A, a couple of different places, or or at least your school district, or also your country. A couple of places have done it. And then, so after that, they send him to Bridgeport, Connecticut, for some reason. Where he gets run out after doing like he gets he 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 flees Connecticut like trying to escape a lawsuit about all the illegal anti union stuff that he did. <laughs> I really love the image of someone trying to desperately flee from Connecticut. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> like it's so small. How how hard yeah. is it to leave Connecticut? It seems pretty you easy. Have to like jump over the line. I mean, the one the one the one that the video I actually want to see is him getting out of Philly. See, see, getting out of Philly sounds actually hard. Yeah, getting out of just Connecticut, Connecticut is like, come on, come on. <laughs> yeah, the video I want to see is him getting sent back to Haiti by himself. Oh God, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's uh, a call to violence. So he runs in again in, t- in 2014. So Bl- Bl- Blagojevich gets arrested for you know selling the Senate seat. 
And he tries to run for lieutenant governor on on a, a, a slate on a, like a, th- a ticket with Pat Quinn, who had been the governor because he'd been the lieutenant governor under Blagojevich. And they like act- they managed to lose in Illinois to a Republican, which is like a thing that should not happen unless a Democrat like really fuck up, which I mean, it happens. Right. But like, Wait, yeah, so he, you, he you loses. Democrats can make can make electoral mistakes. Are you sure? To be I've fair, never, to, be fair to be fair, to be fair. This one wasn't e- this wasn't even an electoral thing. This was just the guy tried to sell a fucking Senate seat and people were so mad at him <laughs> that the next election. They're like, we will vote for Bruce Rauner, who is just like a fucking absolute dipshit. But OK, so he so he, he has now lost two consecutive runs for governor, right? Or governor and lieutenant yeah. governor. Now, this year, he, he actually there was, he, he had another bid where he was maybe going to run and then he stopped and now, now he is one of the candidates for the mayor of Chicago. Now, wh- while he's been doing his campaigning for this, some other fun stuff has been happening. Um, so he has an absolutely unlistenable podcast. Like, oh, I, no. I, I, oh, there he has a podcast. No, oh. no Mia, yeah. please, no. no okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, I, I considered, I considered pulling yeah, no. clips from this and then i was no. like i'm not i can't inflict this on you absolutely it's too, not it sucks That's too not much ha- I, I yeah no. i would simply leave this zoom call i'm not i'm just gonna like i'm just gonna uh talk about one of the things that he said a couple of things that he well okay one that he said on this and one that he said on a different show um one of the things was he, he starts ranting about this thing called culturally responsive teaching which is this kind of liberal like anti-racist the other crt thing. Yeah, this this is a big thing. Like, if, if if anyone ever starts talking about culturally responsive teaching and starts yelling about it, like they're a racist, like that, those are the only people who like actually like consistently. I mean, like, it's not like there aren't criticisms of it, but like almost everyone who talks about this on like a school board level is like a a really yeah. weird racist guy. So he starts raving about how this means that everyone's gonna get handed a copy of Mao's Little Red Book, and then Based. says, "quote What is this? The Cultural Revolution?" <laughs> Now, we have covered the Cultural Revolution over the course of the show and the Atlanta episodes, and I, I, I'm just going to simply say no and move on to read this unbelievably racist thing that he said. I'm just going to read this. It's it's real bad. But for that matter, if you're a black child, do you go home and listen to your parent when your parent has failed to be successful in addressing the ways these historically Ooh. racist obstacles that have denied them a chance to equal opportunity. Uh, he's the guy he's talking to. Paul, I wonder if you're a black kid, why don't you become a criminal? If you're hearing this stuff in school, everyone with the white skin is an oppressor. If you're black skin, you're the oppressed. That makes it pretty easy to justify any b- pretty bad conduct, in my in my opinion. You're absolutely right, says uh, this is Valis comes back. But what you're also doing, you're giving these you're giving people an excuse for bad behavior. You're almost justifying is rant about Kim Fox. So you're right. You're absolutely right. Where's the accountability? You're the victim. What's happening is it becomes a justification for everything, and I think that's a very dangerous thing. <laughs> so v- 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 Valis wow. is arguing that talking about racism is actually a thing that encourages black people to do crime, which is like what? that sounds that sounds kind of racist, Mia. I mean, I, yeah. Just a little <laughs> yeah. bit. Like, just off he, the bat, <laughs> he may be a white supremacist. I, <laughs> just, Gives off racist like, vibes. Yeah. Um, so speaking of racist vibes, uh, his son is a cop in no. I think, Santa Fe, and he was one of three cops who shot a black guy in the back after calling him boy. Um, the cops, oh, including Vela's, was- yeah, they start screaming boy at him and they shoot him in the back. And the cops, including Vela's son, claim to have found a gun next to his body. 
Um, in, 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 in a completely unrelated story, U.S. Special Forces units in Afghanistan routinely carried AK-47s in the combat zone so they could drop them next to the body of people they <laughs> killed guns. in order to declare them insurgents. This has no relation to the previous story at all. I am simply relaying facts. <laughs> Two interesting and unrelated stories. Yeah. Didn't Vallis also... Is He's the guy who claimed his Twitter was hacked, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah. But very way back at the beginning of this episode, I, I talked a bit about the, the, the racism against Lloyd Lightfoot. And like one of the tweets that he liked is a tweet like calling Lori a man, like Lori Lightfoot a man. <sighs> like it's just unbelievably racist, like homophobic, transphobic yeah. shit. And he claims that his account was hacked and people were liking tweets without his <laughs> yeah. permission. Yeah, right. That's all they did. They just liked some racist yeah. tweets. There's like a bunch of other like. And the other thing is like, OK. Like, Paul Vells doesn't, like, actually live in Chicago. You mentioned this. He lives in, like, he claims to live in Palos Heights, which is also not Chicago. But it's unclear whether he even lives there or if he's in, like, some kind of, like, even more insane outlying suburb that's even less Chicago than this yeah. stuff is. And he, like, he likes... He liked he kept, one of the things, like, he kept liking tweets calling it like shit cargo and stuff and it's like well yeah it's because he doesn't live in the city like he's not actually yeah. like these are like he, a bunch of his support a bunch of the money he's getting are from like deranged suburban like reactionaries and okay so I, I want to tell one last story about him that pisses me off a lot which is the story of Awake Illinois so Awake Illinois is like Illinois' version of Protect Texas Kids it's a group that does Nazi protests at drag events. Um, they managed oh, to destroy great. a bakery called Uprising for trying to hold a drag bunt brunch. So the, the 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 awake did all this thing of like ah, this, they're they're grooming kids, and then the Proud Boys showed up and attacked it, and then someone like vandalized it, and they nearly had to close the entire bakery until a GoFundMe raised thirty thousand dollars for them to survive. They are like these people are unbelievably homophobic. They they rant about groomers constantly. They're like really transphobic. Anyways, Paul Vallis spoke at one of their fundraisers. Oh God. So after this came out, Vallis distanced himself from the group, saying he didn't know what they represented and just wanted to support school choice. Awake responded by going, hey, what the fuck? You absolutely know who we are. And they released another video of Vallis at another Awake event where he said that Awake's president, Shannon Adcock, should run for governor. So if elected, would I probably be the most openly homophobic Democratic like mayor in the country, yeah. which is a pretty wild like... Which is a pretty yeah, wild claim, but like I, I can't think of anyone else who actually like showed up at an event where people are just screaming about groomers. Like <laughs> Yeah, not for Democrats. He is just a Republican. Like he's he's like a like a pretty right wing like Republican yeah. who runs as a Democrat because the Chicago political machine is also just so far right. I thought this was because Laurie Lightfoot defunded the police mayor. Uh, I thought that's what happened, and, <laughs> and people want the police back. That's what that's what I that's what I was told. You know, the, th the thing that's actually very funny about the elections is like, so there there is elections for these like police district councils, which are supposed to be these like civilian oversight boards. Yeah, and the like reform there there's kind of there was an alliance of sort of like reform, defund, and abolitionist candidates, and they did fucking amazing, and the pro police candidates got fucking clobbered. <laughs> And then meanwhile, every single national story about the election right. was like, Chicago, yeah. crime. I was like, you guys yeah. don't understand how much everyone here hates the police. Like, I, like they murdered a 13-year-old, like, fucking two years ago. I, <sighs> yeah, good parachute but, journalism. Yeah, I, I, 
I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna hedge my thing here by saying there's so much other Paul Vallis shit I couldn't fit. Like I, I really wanted to talk about Keith Thornton, who is Chicago's George Santos, who like his thing is that he stole 9-11 dispatcher Valor and is like <sighs> keep showing up in pictures with Vallis. Just just Google Keith Thornton and you will have a good time. But like there, there are so many other Vallis things that he did that are awful. There are probably things that he's done that we'll never know about because he did them in like, I don't know. Like, like what the fuck he was doing in Chile. We probably won't ever know all the things he did in Haiti. Uh, yeah, don't let this guy become the fucking mayor of Chicago. He will uh, leave this city utterly destroyed. Let's go, Brandon. I, I, I'm so annoyed that people are unironically let's go Brandoning in Chicago no. now for Brandon Johnson. See, it's, it's great. <sighs> We're bringing it back. We're taking it back. We're reclaiming it. We're re- I, I, re- that- reclaim a Brandon. Yeah, I'm so bad. <laughs> yeah. Like bringing Brandon back. Okay, I got in trouble with my boss in 2015 for saying fuck Hillary. Like you fucking little bitches, you could just you could just say that you you could just say fuck Joe Biden. Like all of you are <laughs> cowards. <laughs> yes, it was. It is deeply cowardly. They're <sighs> afraid of saying fuck, but at the same time, they think they're going to stage an armed overthrow of the government. <sighs> anyway, oh, uh, there's actually okay. This is the thing I actually should mention. There are a bunch of ties between um uh there there are a bunch of ties between uh Vallis and guys who are at J6. Like and like cool. a lot of J6 cool, people cool, support cool. him. Uh he's like he's like he is the MAGA candidate. Uh that's like there's like oh, there's a whole thing there that I didn't get into because I I don't know. There's so much you you could do like seven episodes just about Paul <laughs> Vallis and how much he sucks. But yeah, stop him! If 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 if, yeah. if he fucking gets elected, we're doing the we're doing the we're doing the fucking Chilean student protests because, yeah, hate him. Hope he has a bad day. Bean Dad, the dress, thirty to fifty feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. 
And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey, welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart. Um, And today it's kind of going to be a conversation about uh, is shit falling apart? Are we all about to be devoured by a rogue AI? Is your job about to be devoured by a rogue AI? These are the questions that we're going to, you know, talk around and about and stuff today. Uh, And with us today is Noah John Syracuse, a math professor at Bentley University. Noah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And I'm reaching out, or we're talking right now because there's an article that was put up in uh, the New York Times on March 24th, 2023, titled, You Can Have the Blue Pill or the Red Pill and We're Out of Blue Pills, uh, which is a fun title, uh, by Yuval Harari, um, Tristan Harris, and Azza Raskin. And it's an article that is kind of about the pitfalls and dangers of AI research, of which there definitely are some. Um, I enjoyed your thread on the matter. I thought it was a lucid breakdown of the things the article gets right and the areas in which I think they're a bit fear-mongery. So yeah, I think that's probably a good place to start, Um, unless you wanted to start by just kind of generally talking about where you kind of are on AI and, um, and what you kind of think you know, the technology is is uh, is advancing towards right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I can probably answer both those questions in the same, because part of why I enjoyed writing that thread dissecting the article is I just had the strangest feeling reading it that I agreed with it so much in principle and yet somehow objected it to so much in detail. Yeah. And it, thinking about that article helped me think about my own feelings on AI, which, you know, every day of the week is slightly different because so much news happens. Yeah, I found myself overall deeply frustrated that I agree with the central conclusion, which is that maybe we shouldn't be just like plowing headlong into this and should be more careful when we 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 screw around with technology like this, which I agree with. And I feel like should have been the thing we did with like, I don't know, Facebook, Twitter, like all of these things, like the, the it's less my obsession is less with like the specific dangers of AI and more with well, we keep letting these guys who are fundamentally like gamblers with venture capital money, um, really put our society through the ringer without ever asking, should we like do any research on maybe how social media affects children and like how all of these different things. Um, and and it's, it's right that like, yeah, we should be concerned about what these people are going to do with AI, but also why, why now? Why just now? <laughs> yeah. And, and that raises a really good point, which is, what's different now versus what we've been experiencing with social media. And just to give mm-hmm. your listeners some context, uh, one of the three authors on this New York Times article 
is famous for writing this book, Sapiens. That's yes. a sweeping history of humanity. Yeah. And the other two are actually most famous for the the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. So they yeah. really are in this camp of warning people about social media algorithms. And yeah. as exactly as you're saying, that's sort of this thing that we've been dealing with probably quite poorly. And now yeah. we're kind of moving on to the next societal risk, which is AI. So that is yeah. a really important question of what's different now. And I think that's one of the things the articles try to address, which is many of the problems that we already have with algorithms, data-driven algorithms, and even AI in as it's used in social media is still happening now, but somehow things feel like they're spiraling out of control. Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, honestly, I think a lot of this just has to do with culturally what our touchstones for AI were going into this, you know? which are Skynet, you know, like, like mm -hmm. it's, it's that sort of thing. And you do see, I feel like the, um, the uncredited fourth author on this particular article is James Cameron, because there's pieces <laughs> of it throughout this where like there's, um, it opens actually pretty provocatively. Imagine that you are boarding a, an airplane. Half the engineers who built it tell you there is a 10% chance the plane will crash, killing you and everyone else on it. Would you still board? In 2022, over 700 top academics and researchers behind the leading artificial intelligence companies were asked in a survey about future AI risk. Half of those surveyed stated there was a 10% or greater chance of human extinction from future AI systems, <laughs> which yeah, I so feel let, like let's they're- Let's zoom in on yeah, that. Yeah, let's talk I mean, I think, about that. <laughs> let's because what I tried to do in my thread was go through all the claims and assertions and really pause and say, hold on. Mm -hmm. But that's a great one to start because there's a lot to dig in right there. Yeah. So first of all, there's a huge difference in that airplanes are based on science and physics and things that we understand pretty well. Yes. There's a lot to it. And there's been millions of flights. So you have a lot of data. You know how many planes crash and how many don't. Mm -hmm. Maybe one engine goes out. You can do the statistics and see, oh, you know, whatever percent of planes without that engine still land safely. The problem with AI is we're just guessing. Yeah. Right. There's no way to know 100 years from now or 10 years from now what it's going to do, what the real risks are. So we speculate. And that's not uncharted territory, right? When nuclear weapons were first introduced, sure. people yeah, had absolutely. to guess and speculate. But the danger, I think, is putting it in that same category as things like airplanes or climate yeah. change, I like to think about. Climate change, when you see these, you know, what's the IPCC, I forget the acronym, these reports, yeah. that's based on thousands of scientists digging into thousands of published papers and all this data, really modeling the environment. There's a lot of meat and substance to it. Mm -hmm. The problem with the AI is it's mostly people, I hate to say it, but like me or like you, just yeah. kind of guessing and thinking, yeah. maybe this will happen, maybe that'll happen. The reasonable thing to say if you're in AI is just like, yeah, I have concerns that AI could cause serious negative externalities for the yeah. human race. Perfectly reasonable statement. It is physically impossible to say there's a 10% chance. That exactly. Because it's, it's never done that before. You and can't look, know. <laughs> I'm a math professor and I'm the first yeah. to say numbers don't have some intrinsic meaning, right? If I just say yeah. something is has maybe a 15%, I'm just making it up. I'm pulling it out of my ass. Yeah, yeah That doesn't exactly. make it true. So no. it's, it's this, it's a general pet peeve I have of sort of giving a false sense of precision by using numbers that you don't really know where they came from, or they're just made up. So yeah. that's one issue is these numbers are made up and asking a thousand people to make up numbers isn't necessarily any better than asking one or two, you know, then if the number's made up, it's made up. So I that's also, one issue. Yeah. I also do think, and I, I'm not the, I saw someone make a note, I think it was Ben Collins, who writes for NBC on Twitter, made a note that like, 
Well, the fact that all of these statements about like how dangerous they are about human extinction are coming out of people in the AI industry has started to kind of feel like marketing. That's right. Yeah, exactly. There's a little bit of buzz marketing going on here. And I think you mentioned social media and the authors of this article mentioned social media and we have to look Mm -hmm. to the past, right, to understand Mm -hmm. the future. I think that's the only way to do it. So what was one of the biggest scandals in social media was Cambridge Analytica. Mm -hmm. And as you know, we probably remember this was this data privacy scandal where a bunch of data was collected from Facebook users that shouldn't have been, you know, people didn't realize that their data was being collected. They didn't approve it. And it was used for this election company or this uh, political company that was trying to profile people and influence campaigns towards Donald Trump, towards Brexit. So this was a huge scandal. And, you know, Facebook was fined $5 billion or something very justifiably. Mm -hmm. But I would say what it was in retrospect was a data privacy issue. People's personal data was leaked when it shouldn't have been. The problem was there was so much fear and fear mongering over it that people felt this data was used by these sort of algorithmic mind lasers to kind of know us in such great detail and get us, trick us into voting for Donald Trump and targeting us. And the the jury's still kind of out, but most of the evidence looks like Cambridge Analytica, it wasn't that effective. They just couldn't do it. And it turns out you can know a lot about a person, a lot about their data, and it's really hard to influence them, to change them. So what happened, I think, was there was a lot of alarm set spread, rightly so, about the tech companies. They have too much power, too much data. Mm -hmm. They know too much about us, and this horrible thing happened. The problem was a lot of the alarmism then actually reinforced this aura of power, of godlike power that the tech companies have. Mm -hmm. People criticizing them actually gave them more potency than they deserved. And then suddenly Google and Facebook and all, they had the, it wasn't sudden, but it kind of built it up. They had this aura that our algorithms are so insanely powerful and we have to make sure they stay in the right hands and we can, you know, do so much. And that's unfortunately what I see happening now a lot. And that is kind of the setting for critiquing this article. Yeah. I absolutely agree that this stuff is risky AI. I absolutely agree that we could go down a dangerous path. But once we start leaving firm ground and speculating wildly and using the Terminator stuff that you described, yeah. Even if you think you're criticizing the tech companies, you know what you're doing? Giving them the biggest compliment in the world, saying that yeah. you guys have created are godlike and you've created you've, these mighty machines. You've created a deity, which is yeah. very similar to the language this argue, article has at the end. And I, I think it's kind of worth, like, as you're bringing up, um, there are real threats. There are real threats that are immediately obvious. The threat that a lot of writers are going to lose their jobs because companies like BuzzFeed decide to replace them with, you know, ChatGPT or whatever. The fact that a lot of artists are going to lose out on work because their work's been hoovered up and it's being used to generate. Like, these are very real and very immediate concerns that we don't have to, they're not hypothetical. We don't have to theorize about the AI becoming intelligent for this to be a problem. These are things we we have to immediately deal with um, because that's it, right. It puts people at risk. Um, it, it's the same thing with like, you know, there's a lot that gets talked about with Cambridge Analytica, with kind of like the different Russian disinformation efforts. But when it, I think about the stuff that was happening in the same period that worries me more, one of the things that occurred is because 
there was so much money to be made if you could get certain things to go viral on YouTube, companies that used tools that weren't wildly dissimilar from some of these basically generated CGI videos based on kind of random terms that they knew were likely to trick the algorithm into trending. And God knows how many children were parked in front of these like very unhinged videos for hours at a time that like they would start watching some normal kid musical video or something. And then they're watching like the disembodied head of Krusty the Crown bounce around while like some sort of nonsense song gets sung. And it's like, well, what is that actually going to do with kids? Like, we don't know. That's unsettling, though. <laughs> it is um, deeply unsettling. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing, you know, and, and I'm sure there will be Obviously, like one of the things that this article is not wrong about is that if we kind of leap forward into this technology uh, with the kind of abandon that we're used to giving the tech company, there will be unforeseen externalities that we can't predict right now that will be very concerning. I just don't that's think right. it's Skynet. Yeah. And that that's what is so challenging, not just with that article, but with, I think, the movement we're having is I do f agree very much in spirit. I agree with the recommendations. We need to slow mm -hmm. down. We need to be more judicious and cautious. We need to yeah. really consider these. But again, if we overhype the technology, mm -hmm. we may be doing ourselves a disservice by empowering the very entities that we're trying to take power from. Yeah. And as an and, example like that, can I can I read a quick quote from the article do for it. you? AI's new mastery of language means it can now hack and manipulate the operating system of civilization. By gaining That's... mastery of language, AI <laughs> is seizing the master key to civilization from bank vaults to holy sepulchers. That's right. And that, I mean, that is funny and you're right to laugh. Yeah, yeah. But let's actually zoom in a second. And sure, I think this yeah. is such a tempting trap that AI is super intelligent in some mm -hmm. respects, right? Yeah. We can, it's done amazing at chess, amazing at Jeopardy, amazing at various things. Mm -hmm. ChatGPT is amazing at these conversations. Mm -hmm. So what happens is it's so tempting to think AI just equals super smart. Mm -hmm. And because it can do those things, and now look, it can converse, that it must be this super intelligent conversational entity. Yeah. And it's really good at you know, taking text that's on the web that it's already looked at and kind of spinning it around and processing, it can come up with poems and weird forms, but that doesn't mean it is super intelligent in all respects. For instance, one of the main issues is to hack civilization, to manipulate us with language, it has to kind of know what impact its words have on us. And it yeah. doesn't really have that. It just has a little conversation in text box and I can give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. So the only data that it's collecting for me when it talks to me, any of these chatbots, is did I like the response or not? Mm -hmm. That's pretty weak data to try to manipulate me. You know, it's so basic. That's not yeah. that different than when I watch YouTube videos. YouTube knows what videos I like and what I don't like. Would you say that YouTube has hacked civilization? No, it's addicted a lot of us, but it's not hacked us. Yeah, we people have hacked YouTube and that has done some damage to other people. Like, but it's the like the thing is, and that's that's part of why while I have many concerns about this technology, it's not that it's gonna hack civilization, because like we're really good at doing that to each other. Like there's always huge numbers of people hacking bits of the populace and manipulating each other. And there always have been. That's why we figured out how to paint. Like it's, <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think that there's, um, there's an interesting conversation to be had about the part of why people are kind of willing to believe anything is possible with this stuff is that for folks who were just kind of 
living their lives with a normal amount of attention paid to the tech industry, it seems like these tools popped out of nowhere a couple of months ago, right? It feels like, oh, there was just suddenly been this massive breakthrough. And the reality is that all of the stuff that people, you know, chat GPT, these different AIs that everybody's talking about, this is technology that people have been pouring resources into for years and years and years and years and years. And that's why it's able to do some of these amazing things that we've seen. But it's not, I don't think it means that in a month, it's going to be a thousand times smarter it's go it's it's a process of labor and it was finally ready to be unveiled to the extent that it has been maybe that's right and a good example is uh gpt4 which recently came out there was gpt3 before and mm-hmm. chat gpt and there was so much speculation mm-hmm. that gpt4 is going to be again this this godlike thing yeah. that just you know that brings us to the singularity and and honestly, it it's done better at tests. You know, I forget the numbers, but maybe one of them got a 20% grade on some tests and this one got an 80%. So yeah. that is a significant improvement, right? If you're a yeah. teacher and your students improve that much, you should be happy. You're right. But as you said, is that a thousand times? No, even though the machine is much bigger, much more data. And it just shows that, yeah, like the reality is this is incremental progress. Mm-hmm. Going at a very fast rate, very unsettling, even for those of us following the field closely, mm-hmm. we're experiencing that kind of vertigo that you're saying that, whoa, where did this come from? So even within the field, and you're absolutely right, if you're just at home, you know, not paying attention for a week or a month or a year, suddenly this stuff pops up. It is disorienting. But one thing I think that's helped me at least kind of clarify what, not even answering what the risks are, but just understanding the different camps of why certain people are reacting differently and why even the people afraid of AI seem to be now fighting amongst each other and why it's getting fractured is, are you more afraid of this be AI used as a tool by people or are you more afraid of it kind of taking on its own autonomy and kind of going rogue and doing its own things? Right. And I'm very much afraid of people using it. I think yes. big companies are gonna use it and there's gonna be a lot of problems just like we saw with social mm-hmm. media. People will yeah. get addicted democracies will be flooded with misinformation. It'll be weaponized by various actors. There'll be bot accounts. So I am very concerned about it being used. Basically, it it performing the job it was told to do, yeah. but it'll be told to do dangerous jobs, either making money or making discord. There's another yeah. group of people that are more worried about the AI somehow deciding on its own to do things, to take over. And that's where, you know, may, I can't rule it out. But that's where I kind of am skeptical. Let's focus on how people are using it for now, for the foreseeable future. I don't think we need to worry yet, at least, about the AI somehow having a life of its own and stabbing us in the back and enslaving us. Because yeah. there's just so much that can go wrong before we even get to that point. Yeah, and it's it's not – that that's exactly like it's a threat triage kind of thing where like is it theoretically possible that one day human beings could create an artificial intelligence that is capable of having its own agency that is malicious? Yeah, sure, I guess. Like, I mean, maybe, (laughs) but man, we're, uh, there's a lot of us that are very malicious (laughs) right now that are actively trying to harm other people at scale. I'm concerned about how they will use AI to do that. And I I think botnets are a really good example. One of the things that, that these, these new, this newest generation of AI tools allows is more realistic and intelligent bots than I think have been accessible at scale before. And that's a very Mm -hmm. real concern. Um, I will say when I kind of, Sorry, when I kind of wargame this back and forth with myself, one thing that is oddly comforting is like, well, the shared 
commons that we all inhabit of like ontological truth is already so shattered that like there's there's only so much damage I feel like adding additional bots and additional disinformation can really do. Um, like well, I don't one one yeah. thought on that though because I I've been digging into that too or I've been you know trying to ponder how I feel about that because yeah. a lot of this I don't know you know I'm I'm trying to make yeah, make it up as like yeah, yeah. is I do think if you go back to like 2016 earlier versions of the internet you know before leading up to Donald Trump's election yeah I think there was a lot of wild west to google to social media to all yeah. these things right fake news was just like piling up to the top of of google search results that election was so monumental and such a se seismic shockwave through tech that fake news and misinformation might have played a role mm -hmm. that they really had to do something and i think yeah. some companies are more effective than others i think google put a lot of effort into making sure authoritative sources rise to the top so what that means is when now you go online and you google for medical information the, the top results you get are WebMD or some official CDC or government thing. They're pretty decent, reliable. It's not to say there isn't all that crap on the internet, but Google's done a pretty good job of having the good stuff float to the top. And that's the information that people see. So what I'm worried is now we might be kind of resetting ourselves back to the 2016, where when you're talking to these chatbots that are trained on all of the internet, yeah, I don't know if the WebMDs and the CDC type of information is necessarily going to float to the top. Maybe they'll work that out, but I'm also worried that um, OpenAI or Google or Microsoft or whoever, they'll have ones that are pretty reasonable and kind of you know tuned to appeal to a lot of people. But Elon Musk might build his own competitor one yeah. that might be really tuned to elevate the right-wing sites. Yeah, or the live in your site. car. You know, who knows? Yeah. So I, I have been messing around as, I mean, and you have been doing so in a much more rigorous manner, I'm sure, but I, I've screwed around with a couple of different uh, AI chat and search engines. I use Find, P-H-I-N-D sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, I've been playing around with Bing. And one of the things I've noticed is that, you know, if you ask it like, hey, summarize for me, like why the Battle of Hastings mattered, you'll get a reasonably decent answer. Um, but if I ask it like, I don't know, specific questions about myself, I've come to, I, I noticed at first when I did it, I would get some really weirdly like colloquial vernacular from it explaining things. And I realized it was just pulling answers directly that fans had asked about me on the subreddit that uh, this show has. Oh, and so when I think about like ways in which to game the system, well, you make a bunch of bots, you have them post questions and answers that are you know supportive of this specific product line or whatever on a subreddit and hope that it gets picked, like scanned by an AI. And that becomes part of its like answer for, you know, what happens if, you know, I can't stop itching or whatever. I don't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 like, obviously, you, you can see using them ways in which these can and will be gamed to some extent. You know, it's always kind of a Red Queen sort of situation where you have to disinformation, people fighting disinfo, you're, you're always running as fast as you can just to stay in place. That's right. And that is, that brings up another issue, which I do feel like this is possibly really tipping the balance in that it takes a certain amount of resources to create misinformation yeah. It takes a certain amount of resources to debunk it, right? A journalist right. has to sit down. Snopes has to write a little piece about it. And the problem is with this AI, it's suddenly just dropping the price of creation down to essentially zero. Anyone can create essentially a limitless yeah. supply of quasi-information that may or may not be true. But the problem is, is the price of journalism, of debunking also going down? Maybe by 50%, right? Maybe yeah. it takes you half as much time to write an article it's not going to zero. No. So that's the balance is 
creating stuff has gotten a lot cheaper. Detecting, debunking, doing proper journalism has gotten a little bit cheaper. So I'm worried that that's journalists are already stretched yeah. thin, and this that, is that going to be that attention by far my biggest concern because it's it's not just this. That's obviously a, a significant factor in it. There will be more disinformation. There will not be more journalists in part because I think AI is going to take jobs from that's particularly right. low level. It's not going to replace you know prize winning columnists at the New York Times. It's not going to replace like. Guys like me, who have a very long and established, you know, career of doing the specific thing that we do. But I think back to when I got started as a as a journalist, as a writer, it was as a tech blogger, and I, I had an X number of articles that I had to get out per day. And obviously, like, my boss was essentially trusting that with that many articles, I'd have a few that did well on Google, and that brings in traffic, and that brought in money. And there's a degree to which you're just kind of doing SEO shit, but it's also, I conducted my first interviews for that job. I went to trade shows for the first time. I did my first on-the-ground journalism for that job. It taught me how to write quickly and in a polished nature, and I was not writing anything that was, like, crucial to the, the, the development of humankind, but it made me into the kind of person who was later able to write things that were read by people all over the world and that had an influence on people. And I worry about the brain drain, not just among journalists, but among writers and among uh, among artists, you know, people who do illustrations and stuff, eventually musicians, at least some kinds of musicians will probably also run up against this, where the stuff that it was easy for kind of people breaking in to get a little bit of work that would hone their skills and and allow them to, you know, live doing the thing that they're interested in is going to disappear. And more and more of the stuff that we kind of casually low-level consume, not our high art, not our favorite movies, not our favorite books, but the stuff that we encounter when we stumble upon a web page or like in a commercial or whatever will be increasingly made by AIs. And that AI will be pulling from an increasingly narrow set of things that humans made because less humans will get that entry-level work. And that is, there's something concerning there. That is something that worries me about the future of of just creativity. Yeah. And I think, I mean, two points. One is just to kind of be devil's advocate a little bit, because I do sympathize and I think you're right. <laughs> but a little bit devil's advocate is there it might be on the flip side of the coin that there's people that feel like they have artistic imagination and desires, but lack the technical ability and suddenly they can paint, so to speak, by using these AI image generators. Maybe someone has some form of dyslexia or their English as a second language or even, you know, native speaker without any of these issues, obstructions, but just finds the writing process difficult. And maybe AI enables them to be a writer to contribute. So I could see, you know, there's there's going to be the, the pros and the negatives. And I don't know how the balance is, but I think yeah. you're right. Thinking from a profession, that's sort of like. A passion project view <laughs> from a professional yeah. view, I do see the profession narrowing. If it journalists are expected to work twice as quickly because they're all using chatbots, there's probably going to be half of half as yeah. many of them, right? Yep. I mean, that's that's the economics. But this it is, brings up a bigger issue, which is yeah. I do think what you're hitting on is there are these long-term risks that maybe AI is going to fuel this rebellion of robots and this, you know, maybe. But again, we have an economics, a social, political, economic world we live in. And I just think let's really focus on the issues we have now. That's not discounting the future. It's not like let's burn a bunch of carbon emitting fuels because who cares about climate change? That's our grandkids problems. Yeah. This is different. It's like, 
let's think about the jobs, the world. I mean, another way to put this is if we mess up our economy and mess up our democracy by people losing jobs and mass protests and losing trust in the government, and there's just an erosion of truth, we're not going to be able to handle climate change or any of these big AI, you know, <laughs> the singularity type of risks. So what I feel like is let's focus on what keeps our economy and our sanity and our humanity. Let's keep this fabric of society together now so that we're more equipped in the future to handle all the, the risks, AI and otherwise. But this goes back to what you're saying, which is these are real issues in the short term. And if we don't address them, if we get distracted by the long term, we're not going to be ready to address the long term. Yeah. Even if we think about it now, we'll be so distracted and so dismayed. Yeah. So I think we have to be practical here. I, I agree. And I, I am also, I think that's an, a valid point that you make about the fact that while these are tools that will reduce options for some people, they're also tools that create options that and that can be used for the creation of art, of culture. Um, I do think some people I know have brought up Photoshop when I talk about my concerns with AI and are like, you know, there were a lot of, you know, people, draftsmen and whatnot, who were concerned when Photoshop hit because it, it was a threat to some of the things that they did for money. And Photoshop effectively has created whole forms of art that didn't exist or didn't exist in the same fashion before it, it did as a tool and tools like it. Um, and that's not a, I, I think, I, I think it's kind of worth, I, I don't like... Uh, I don't want to be kind of just on the edge of tragedy here. You know, this is a there's mm -hmm. a lot of different ways this could go, and they're not all bad. I think we're all used to calamity right now, so much so that we we potentially expect it in situations where it's not the inevitable outcome. Um, well, that I mean, that's I think one way to kind of boil a lot of that down is we can adapt. We just need time to do so. To yeah. many things and what's really challenging and frustrating now is the pace is so fast it's not just an illusion it's not just oh if you don't pay yeah. attention to ai it really is fast it's very very hard for us to adapt mm -hmm. so just thinking of the internet we got a lot like individuals as users and tech companies got a lot better at dealing with clickbait right youtube was tons of clickbait and they figured out ways to demote that to some extent mm -hmm. we got a lot better at keeping fake news out of the high search rankings in google like i mentioned a lot of these problems that came up were not perfectly addressed not even close but there was significant progress and that's often understated but if these problems are coming so fast and so intense it's a lot to adapt to, and that's what's really the challenge is the pace. And I think we're we're seeing a very, very breakneck pace that's really hard. Now, does that mean you're on the side of uh, like Elon Musk and some of those folks who just signed that letter being like, maybe we should put a pause on uh, AI research? Because, you know, I'm not 100% uh, against it. Again, I, I kind of am like, man, I wish we'd been having this conversation when you know Facebook dropped or YouTube dropped, but... I, I don't think that's a realistic thing. I'll say that. But I do Let's, think, yeah. Yeah. So I would say, no, I'm not I'm not a, <laughs> a favor that, for one yeah. thing, I mean, in a very practical sense, you think all these companies that are putting billions of dollars into these investments in AI, AI are all going to sit around saying, you know what, let's just not do this cool for it. a few months. No, of course not. Um, <laughs> so here's what I think. They're not going to slow down. What's going to happen is going to happen. Even if some players decide to be responsible and slow down, guess what? That means the only people plunging ahead are going to be the yep. irresponsible ones. So what I think we need to do is I don't think we can really slow that down. So what about the flip side? I think we need to accelerate public education on 
artificial intelligence. I think we need to accelerate government legislation, regulation, international cooperation. I don't think we can solve this by slowing AI down. I do think we need to find a way to speed up our democratic processes. It's taken us how many years to pass basically nothing about social media in the US and some mixed results in Europe. Yeah, That's the problem, right? If yeah, we could work absolutely. faster, then I think we could keep up. And I think that that's that's actually the long term like practical survival thing from this is that I hope we get is like, yeah, we've always needed to be more careful about the things that we expose billions of people to suddenly. Um, it should have happened before now, but I I hope that this I hope that all I hope the fact that AI because of James Cameron is coded into our brains to be something that triggers a little bit of panic in people. I hope that rather than reacting with panic, it leads to a more intelligent and considered state of affairs when potentially embracing technologies that are going to change life for huge numbers of people. That's right. And that is yeah. I think we have an opportunity here to experience that and explore that and try. And that that is kind of what I was aiming for in that thread is, again, yeah. I love that article that you know you mentioned in the beginning. But if we start going down this road of hype, there is a danger that we're going to fall into these traps. And I think let's stay grounded. Let's stay practical. Let's really identify the risks. Not that I'm some guru and know what they are, but it's almost easier to see what's not true <laughs> than what is yeah. true. Yeah. And that's, I, I think, let's all try to police each other and make sure we're focusing on practical things that really are manageable, that really are genuine risks yeah. that are impacting people, that are impacting people today, and especially ones that are impacting marginalized populations. Yes. So I think, let's hope we learn these lessons. And yeah. I am not optimistic, but I'm not as cynical. Yeah. I think there's a lot yeah. of important discussions happening now that... Let's just say there's a lot more discussion now than we had with social media, and maybe yeah. that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Uh, Noah, did you have anything you kind of wanted to plug before we roll out here? Um, no, I just I think it's it's a great topic that everyone can be involved in, and I just my <laughs> plug is just don't be intimidated, don't be afraid. I am writing a book that's not going to come out for a couple of years that's trying to help at empower people to kind of be part of these conversations, but that's far off. I just want to say broadly, don't be intimidated and don't fall for this narrative that sometimes happens in, in tech communities that, oh, you know, I'm not a tech person. I don't have a chance to understand it. This stuff affects all of us and how it affects you matters and your opinion matters and your voice matters. And we're all part of social media. We're all very soon going to be part of AI and chatbots. So don't don't be afraid to join the conversation. You don't need any technical background because I think the subject is just as much sociological as technical. It's, yeah. it's about people. I think that's a great point to end on. Thank you so much, Noah. Really appreciate your time. And uh, everybody else, have a, have a nice day. I mean, you have a nice day too, also. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, you too. It was lots of fun. <laughs>30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. 
because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Ah, ah, welcome back to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart, sometimes about putting them back together, um, sometimes just about enduring difficult times. And it's it's been a rough couple of weeks, what with the mass shooting in Tennessee and the right accelerating their anti-trans paranoia, uh, the whole, you know, Trump getting arrested and all that, all the... Yes, that has really hit all of us really hard. Yeah, it's been really... Yeah. <laughs> Deeply really? now that now that Trump is uh, has been charged with felonies, he's officially a friend of mine. So yeah, we, this we, is, we're, we are, we're on we, Team we are, Trump now. I'm really convict. Uh, I'm I'm really conflicted between my ACAB side and my illegalist side. It's really it's really hard. To- <laughs> I mean, 34 felonies. That's quite a legalist. Very few of the people I know who commit crimes as like a vocation have that many. <laughs> it's pretty um, difficult. But at any rate, you know, it's been a rough couple of weeks, and I thought we could use a lighter episode to, you know, help everybody uh, everybody feel better. And I, I know that you, Mia, and you, Gare, are both youngins. Uh, you, you missed the earlier age of the internet and the heroes of that ancient age, you know? <laughs> uh, when I was a child, you know, it, it was Jupiter and, uh, and, and all the, uh, the Greek gods of the old internet. You, y'all, y'all have come up more in the Roman gods of the old internet era. So yeah. I, wanted, I wanted to talk about an ancient hero of the internet. And perhaps this will become a series that we do now and again, where we, we talk about we talk about the gods of the past. And today, the ancient deity that we're talking about is, is kind of like the internet's Hercules, a man named Troy Hurtabees. Have you guys heard of Troy Hurtabees? 
no. I've not I've not heard of Troy Hernemis, <laughs> but I do have one correction. Jupiter what? is actually a Roman god. The Greek oh, version I, is Zeus. I'm you're sorry. right. You're right. You're right. I, I before it up. before some freak DMs me and sends me like uh-huh. three paragraphs <laughs> on this. I'm just gonna yeah. put that out there. Do not DM me about this. I, yeah. <laughs> We need to do that thing where we start we, st- we start including one of these every episode that drive up yeah, engagement. Yeah, just, just fucking up purposefully in order to get people. They love doing it. They love being able to hop on. I do. Ever, we did get recently. We did the Liver King episodes this week, and somebody popped on to be like, hey, guys, you're probably not aware of this, but the livers of polar bears uh, contain enough vitamin, vitamin A to K kill, to kill, to you. kill yes. 140 people, something like that. Um, don't eat polar bear livers. This is relevant because we are talking about a man today whose lifelong goal was to develop a suit of armor that allowed him to fight bears in hand-to-hand combat. I mean, or this, this is actually very applicable for us because just last week we went to the theater to watch Cocaine Bear. You're right. Um, this this man would have been one of the only people capable of dealing with a cocaine bear. So, once upon a time, before the breaking of the world, there lived a beautiful maniac named Troy Herdebees. Troy was a simple man. He was born in Hamilton, Ontario in 1963. He liked the outdoors, and he was a dedicated conservationist. The one exception to his abiding love of nature— was bears. On August 4th, 1984, when Troy was 21 years old, he went hiking in central British Columbia. Now, he's given a couple of versions of this story over the years. Some that this happened say that this happened when he was a boy. Others say he was like 20 years old. But all agree that he wound up in close proximity to a grizzly bear. In the most exciting and almost certainly untrue version of the story, the bear knocked Troy down, and he dropped the twenty-two caliber rifle he was carrying, which would not have made much difference against a grizzly no, bear. No. It just, it, it, you, will, you will only make it more upset. Yeah, a twenty-two yeah. is not the weapon you want in that situation. In a desperate attempt to defend himself, he drew a knife. We're going to talk about Troy's knives in a minute here. Okay. Now, In an interview with Mental Floss many years later, Troy claimed that seeing the knife, the bear thought better of attacking him after this. Okay, (laughs) okay, wait a minute. That's not how bears work. Like, has, has this bear been like involved in other fights with guys with knives? Is there like another maniac running around? This bear got stabbed behind a Seven yeah. Eleven and is like, "Nah, man, I don't Grizz don't fuck with knives no more. I've been through that shit." Yeah. Is he probably yeah. like a street gang? Like, is, yeah. is... nah, bro, nah, bro, ain't worth it. <laughs> and in, so, um, he later claims an expert told him he would have been mauled if there been any cubs this i believe yes bears very rarely attack people now a normal man would have taken this number one as boy i sure got lucky and number two as i should be more careful when out in the woods but troy was not a normal man his first thought was that he needed to invent a new form of mace made specifically for bears um he had been beaten in developing bear mace by an actual scientist although the first paper on bear mace was published in 1984 so it makes sense that it wouldn't have been available at the time Uh, okay it was a reasonable thing to be like Hmm. maybe we should have a mace for use in against bears <laughs> um there are again several versions of what came next i'm going to quote from one that i found in a write-up by the spec now quote from then he decided that his destiny in life was to invent a dependable bear spray repellent but he realized field testing with bears would be needed this would require a protective suit for the oh, person no. doing the test <laughs> no so oh, no 
<laughs> in his interview with Middle Floss, one of the later pieces on the man, Troy dropped the mace story and claimed that he had the idea just to make bear-resistant armor a year after his grizzly encounter when he was watching RoboCop and decided bear researchers <laughs> would need protective armor that would let them test bear spray and also safely observe grizzly behavior. <laughs> Troy is something of an unreliable narrator, but I will say I do not doubt that the film RoboCop influenced no. his subsequent <laughs> yes, acts. No, uh, this, he absolutely had this idea while watching RoboCop. That makes that that makes the most sense out of anything you said so far. Yeah. It is very logical. So. It is now Troy, it should be noted, is not the first, probably not the first man who has thought I should develop a suit of armor to allow me to grapple with bears in hand to hand combat. Um, It is possible that in medieval Europe, some people hunted bears while wearing full body suits of armor covered in spikes. There is debate as to whether or not this really happened. Uh, The gist of why this is a debate is that there's an insane-looking suit of armor currently in a Houston museum that was probably made in Switzerland or Germany like 400-ish years ago. Researchers have not conclusively determined why it was made or for what purpose, but one theory is that it was used for bear baiting. If so, it was used for European bears, which are significantly smaller than grizzly (laughs) bears. And as far as we know, was never a widespread practice. This is because attempting to fight a bear in hand-to-hand with a suit of armor is insane and something only a madman would do. But I am going to show you this suit of armor because it looks like something from a David Lynch movie. Oh, but I'm so I'm so thrilled. Specifically the face. So look at that. Look at that beautiful thing. Oh, oh my I've God. seen this. Yeah. <laughs> Except that, I, I told it was isn't Russian. the face of that unsettling? <laughs> they, they think probably somewhere around Austria or Switzerland, although it's not, I don't think, known to a, a point of certainty. <laughs> That, that it is, looks fucked up. It looks like it, it looks like a like 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 a metal casting of someone's head, but yeah. with like but with like the pinhead thing. Yeah, from, I, 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 it's a Hellraiser. Yeah. I think is the movie. Yeah, the, um, yeah. Server bites. the, yeah. the face on it is distinctly unsettling. <laughs> Like they could have just made a normal helmet, but like no, no, it, no, it, it no, is the no. guy. Like there's a nose. It's the guy's face. We got it. It's we're not horrifying. doing this right unless we like peek into the uncanny valley with this thing. Troy was not interested in the fact that attempting to fight a bear in body armor is just objectively nuts. And since he was as handy as he was unhinged, he set swiftly to building a suit of armor and then testing it. Um, I'm going to read another quote from the specs write up because it's extremely funny. So the suit became his focus of attention, putting it through all kinds of tests that included being run down by a pickup truck driven by his father, (laughs) rolling off the side of a cliff, and being pummeled by bikers with baseball bats. And I'm going to play you a video of Troy, um, one of these tests, where Troy gets hit by a tree. It's almost exactly that scene from Hot Rod, if you've watched the movie Hot Rod, where they like swing a, a log down at him and hit him. Um, that may in fact be what that scene is based on, but I'm going to, I'm going to share that with y'all now. The log is going to... (laughs) Oh my gosh. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Get on him, guys. I I cannot emphasize enough that it looks like half this armor is held together by duct tape. It's just like the, like 
this looks like a fever dream combination of the Wizard of Oz and like the and like the Battle of Endor. Which yeah. is like, he yeah. walks he walks throwing massive logs at the guy in the metal tin suit. It, it's white. It's a white suit too. Yeah, it it looks almost like something from um. Like Speed Racer is weirdly yeah. enough the the aesthetic that I would rec- I would closest compare it to. It is yeah. kind of like that anime robot style design. Yeah, it's 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 profoundly unhinged. So I want to <laughs> I want to play you a clip of him getting the helmet off, so you can listen to Troy talk and see this man's face. How'd that one go? Better than the first. Yeah. Because I had that uh, whew, uh, that stuff on my mouth. Yeah. I, if I have a mouthpiece, a mouthpiece, you could do that all day long. I got the airbags in the back, eh? So my neck hasn't got a lot of play, so that'll be perfect for the grizzly. I can I can take what he can give me with that. No problem. That log there. If that couldn't do anything to me, and I feel great, like really great. And actually, uh, my left hand was asleep. It's now awake. <laughs> oh, oh, really? You don't say. Yeah. Troy, Troy damage, is a fascinating huh? man. So... I'm going to play you now, him being attacked by a bunch of men with baseball bats as he attempts to move in this suit. And I have to emphasize to you, he is not capable of moving in this thing. This is an immobile suit of armor that he can, he can almost shuffle in it, but not quite. I idea with the with, with pickup truck and the bikers with regards to big men. Being an anthropologist, he, uh, uh, he looked at uh, the testings we had uh, originally done. Uh, with uh, normal-sized men, you know, 150, 180 pounds, he said the public isn't going to buy it. They're, they're looking at this monstrous grizzly bear, and they're looking at a normal-sized man hitting you with bats and boards and stuff like that. They're not going to buy it. You have to give them reality. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is insane. This is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> amazing amazing <laughs> I just to grown, it's like you. a gang of men just attacking this nerd in a metal suit is is <laughs> what it looks like <laughs> yes it's so funny it's 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 extremely funny they're like and they pick like terminator 2 looking bikers like they, it's, they, they it's, go it's, out of their way the, 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 all of the stylization is super is super bizarre yeah, it's it's such a strange documentary. This is from the documentary Project Grizzly. And there's Troy Gibbs in the various interviews he does some pretty incredible quotes. Like years after this, he wrote, at 52, I have to know whether or not the suit will hold. It's one of the curiosity things. We tested the suit a lot of ways, but never went against the Grizzly. <laughs> and the suit that you're seeing is like the first version of his suit, the Ursus Mark I. He eventually gets up to the Mark VI and spends more than $150,000 making <laughs> various versions of these bear suits. Actually, sorry, I think the one that we're looking at in the documentary is the Mark VI, because he did eventually, after years of this quest, get a documentarian interested, and the film Project Grizzly was made about his quest. Um, one fun piece of trivia about it is that it's one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite movies. That, ma- that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it, it makes, yeah, it makes total sense. Now, in order to give you just one last piece of context about the personality, what kind of man is Troy Herdebees, uh or was Troy Herdebees, I am going to play you a clip of an interview with this man um, from the documentary that's just 
just perfect. He's holding in this a gigantic Bowie knife in his hand, and he has another Bowie knife strapped across his shoulder in such a way that it's on his shoulder but pointed down, yeah. um, which is the way a crazy man carries a Bowie <laughs> knife. <laughs> He's also, it's worth noting, dressed as like a frontier settler, but wearing like a red military beret. <laughs> I go into the bush, I don't use a gun. Never don't believe in guns. I swear by my knives. They save your life a thousand times around. If a grizzly's going to come at you, and I'm not saying knives are going to save you. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you've got a gun, and that grizzly is 50 feet, 100 feet away from you. you got one shot. I don't give a shit who you are or how steady you are. You've got one shot in that grizzly. And if he's still coming at you, that gun, you might as well use the barrel on him. Or you can use the stock on them, that's useless. But if you've got some half-decent knives, at least you got a fighting chance with animals. But that's not the reason why when I go into the mountains or I go into the bush or any man goes into the bush, they don't carry knives for the four-legged animals. They carry knives for the two-legged animals. Because nowadays, it's a lot like the old days. You've got a lot of wackos up there, and it's <laughs> knives that you want at close quarters. Yeah, you do, have, you do indeed have a lot of wackos up there, Troy. <laughs> um... <laughs> So that's that's a brief introduction to Troy Hurtabees. Now, the suit that you've seen in the Project, Project Grizzly documentary weighed 150 pounds, and it was not in any way powered. As, as you see in the doc, he can kind of barely shuffle with it. He is unable to move or even stand on uneven ground. He falls over very easily. Um Troy liked the documentary, felt like it helped expose his work to a wider audience, but he took issue with the fact that the documentary did not delve into what he described as the science behind it all, um, adding, <laughs> being able to get hit by the truck took years of development. Now, years, you, years two, of practice of getting hit yeah, by trucks. Yeah, it's, it, you can't just jump into getting hit by a truck like that. In 2002, a trainer who probably should not be allowed around animals let Troy get into a cage with a Kodiak bear. Now, thankfully, the bear was too confused by Troy's armor to want to get near him, which you might argue is, is technically a win for Troy. The armor did do its job. Just scare them away. They yeah, don't want to mess with you. They don't, the bear just saw that and was like, you know what? This There's man wrong is, with this guy. is clearly unwell. I do not want to be around this person right now. <laughs> Here's Mental Floss interviewing Troy. She was so terrified she urinated, Herdebees recalls. I didn't look human enough. Limited mobility and questionable usefulness combined to doom the Mark series. We would never use a suit like that, says Lana Sierranello, PhD, a bear behavior expert. A solid knowledge of bear behavior is the best thing one can use to avoid being attacked, which is rare. <laughs> and this is co this is common whenever they talk to actual bear experts and researchers. Like, do you want a suit of armor? They're like, no, that that's not at all useful. It's very easy to not get attacked by bears, actually. And it, again, if you watch the documentary Grizzly Man. And the man in the documentary Grizzly Man is a similar type of person to Troy Hurtabees. They are both people, I, I do believe Troy Hurtabees might need a suit of bear armor because he seems like the kind of person to push grizzly bears past their limits of comfort. Very rarely will someone else wind up in that situation. Nonetheless, the armor brought Hurtabee's fame. He, he was all over the internet. I found out about him because one of my colleagues at Cracked wrote about him in an article. But, like, you would see this guy all the time. I'm sure I ran—I think I also ran across him on Something Awful earlier. 
Um, he would regularly put out videos. He had an he had an, an early kind of understanding for how to make yourself into a brand on the internet in order to get funding. And so he was very successful at raising money in order to like make new iterations of his armor. He was also recruited on several Japanese game shows, uh, and he inspired a 2003 episode of The Simpsons where Homer constructs a bear fighting suit. Uh, he even filmed an Audi commercial. Of course, he always reinvested the proceeds directly into making more suits of bear armor. Now, the good news is he eventually moved on from wanting to make armor that was specifically geared towards fighting bears, but he never got over his desire for making a suit of elaborate body armor. So he pivoted, claiming that now his brother was in the military, and so he wanted to make flexible body armor themed after the armor in Halo to help keep soldiers and SWAT officers safe during dangerous raids. His next suit was called the Trojan, and it featured a compass in the dick for reasons that are deeply confusing. How does but that... Troy what, always, what, wait, what, how, that's, not even, that's not even a useful spot. Like... Put it on like your watch like if you area. Watch or him. He 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 is adamant that he had talked to special forces guys, and they said right in the dick is where you want a compass. It like flipped down, so it looks like he has a penis that's made out of compass. Okay, that that is kind of funny. I, I'm gonna play you a clip of this armor, which I will say looks a lot more professional than the last suit. The first ballistic full exoskeleton bodysuit of armor. This came from 20 years of development through uh, the bear suits and about 1,750 uh, hours of actual uh, building time. And it came from so many calls I got from friends of mine in Iraq and in Afghanistan. My brother was in the military talking about, is there, can you not go in the direction that we need, which is, you know, against the IEDs, improvised uh, explosive devices, and, and, you know, build it to the point where you've got the flexibility, the lightness, but with the strength of, of what the bear suits were. And that's where, that's where this came from. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you right now, that suit is not going to help you against an IED. Um, the gigantic heavy armor you see in the Hurt Locker only kind of helps you if it's a pretty small IED. What he's built is not going to protect you from, like, uh, an explosively formed penetrator or, like, a 5,000-pound fertilizer, 500-pound fertilizer bomb or something like that. Um, to test this, though, Troy hired a former military marksman, a guy who he claimed had previously covered him out in the woods on bear expeditions with less lethal ammo, um, and he asked this man to shoot him point-blank with a rifle. <laughs> <laughs> so... Thankfully, this guy was like, Troy, it's illegal to point a loaded weapon at a person in our province. Uh, I'm not going to shoot you directly in the chest with a hunting rifle. So Troy had him take the armor out of the suit and then shoot at it. And the bullet went immediately through the armor. Um, it says a lot about Troy that his first instinct was not shoot the armor without a human being in it. But um, at least that's, he yeah, was. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, at least the guy who was testing it uh, did not shoot him directly in the chest and kill him. Um, I'm going to quote again from Mental Floss here. Herdebees tweaked the Trojan, which he debuted in 2007 to little notice. Eventually, he offered his design to the Canadian military for free, but it can take years for armed forces to evaluate new technology, and existing contracts with equipment vendors render it near impossible for independent inventors without backing or references to succeed. With industrial military, contracts are sewn up, and they don't want anyone stepping on toes, he says. Engineers pick my brain, but I can't be affiliated with them. I'm a loose cannon, and my methodology is backward. I do not disagree with that statement. 
Um, he did, however, have several other in, uh, inventions over the years. Um, for one thing, Troy invented a burn paste, a, a, a gooey substance that hardens when exposed to flame in order to protect you. Canada's Discovery Channel documented him covered in the burn paste, being uh, exposed to temperatures above 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit. He held a blowtorch to his helmeted head for 10 minutes. Um and it 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 worked. Uh, it, this leaves out a fun fact, which is that Troy was inspired to make his burn pace because one day while wearing his suit, it overheated, burning most <laughs> of his body very badly. Oh, no. uh, so he needed to make the burn pace in order to protect himself. Yeah, um, like, it doesn't seem easy to get in and out of. Like no. Um, it would not be easy to don your, if you look at the helmet there, your peripheral version is going to be shit. It's not going to be good for like fighting in and it is going to exhaust you. Like he builds an air conditioner for it, but that's only going to do so much like armor. Body armor is always kind of like a, uh, uh, a a trade-off between mobility and protection and something like a plate carrier is worth it, but full body armor that's not powered in a meaningful way, just is not going to be practical yet. This is why I do not respect the Mandalorians. No, no. You, uh, you, you've you, been vocal about that for years. I have. I'm going to play you a video of him testing this fire paste from that Canadian <laughs> Discovery <laughs> Channel documentary, because <laughs> okay. it's very funny. <laughs> Troy envisions neighborhoods in the path of a forest fire being sprayed with a thin layer of fire paste, effectively starving out the fire. And according to Troy... Cleanup is a breeze due to fire pace only weakness. Water. <laughs> Look at how it's just see? It it go, turns back into a paste. See? I've I'm already into a layer. See? It's just paste now. Which is fire paste. This is its natural state. And when it dries, see I'm already sloughing it off now. There's there's it is there. It turns to the paste. This is what's gonna happen on your house. Now it's uh He's chewing it up. <laughs> oh, and he's oh that's so gross. <laughs> He's just spitting it all over. The dog comes along, takes a little in his mouth, washes it around, then spits it out. Nothing's going to happen. It's biodegradable, non-toxic. Don't have to worry about anything happening. So how would a homeowner remove the fire paste from the outside of their home? This is going to be Bob's house next door. Bob's house is going to be fine the next day. He's going to come out with his garden hose and a can of beer, and in two hours, he'll be ready for the football game. Oh, look, there goes the house. After 10 minutes, Troy inspects the fire paste house. Look at, look at this, look at this. There's a little Barbie. She's okay. Barbie's fine. You saved Barbie's sister. Uh, <laughs> the Barbie is clearly singed. No, yeah. <laughs> now, he does note again that the only weakness of the fire paste is water. This might reduce its efficacy, but I think he envisions it being dumped on neighborhoods in the path of a fire. They decided not to do this. Now, why why Tro- does he keep getting platforms? Like why why is he continuing? Well, he was because he, because this was really funny to everyone on the internet. So a documentary that came out would get shared all over. People would watch it. It would get him attention. He would get donations. There was like one point where he had to he had to sell his uh his body armor he had to like sell it to a pawn shop because he was broke and a fan bought it back from the pawn shop and gave it to him so he could <laughs> Aww, continue his that's research that's, yeah that's nice yeah he had a fan base like i said he was a hero of the old internet um he did eventually oh. succeed in making an armor suit that was resistant to 12 gauge shotgun shells which he acts like is very impressive shotgun shells are not good at penetrating armor 
most soft body armor vests will stop a shot shell from penetrating it. Shotguns are not for penetrating armor. They're for damaging meat. Um, but Troy made a big deal about how this would save the lives of soldiers in war. Um, his next invention, as he was continuing to iterate his body armor, was something called the Godlight device. Now, Troy never gave much detail on what the Godlight was, but he says it shrunk tumors in mice as well as his sister's tumor, and he would tell interviewers he was pretty sure it could cure Parkinson's disease. <laughs> light is extremely effective against certain cancers. All I did was take all spectrums of light, electromagnetic radiation, and put them together, <sighs> oh, and it works. I don't oh, know no. why, but it does. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I think that's how you get cancer. But okay, <laughs> funny, funny you mentioned that. So obviously, his claims about the godlight were never validated by any outside force, in part because shining whatever the fuck he's invented on a bunch of sick people has ethical considerations to it. But Troy turned the light on himself uh, and experienced what he calls the Hyde effect. I think as in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, his hair fell out and he lost 20 pounds. (laughs) Curious. What a a Um, mystery. Then he claims the God light mysteriously stopped working and he didn't have the money to fix it up. Um, (laughs) There are a man. <laughs> I love this man. It's he it was- is it is it is fascinating. The the closer society comes to just complete collapse, we get more of these little weirdos mm-hmm. who are like trying to figure out how to like survive the apocalypse. <laughs> and they keep coming and in exactly with- the wrong ways. Yes. <laughs> um I'm going to read another quote from that Mental Floss article. Today, Herdebees operates a scrapyard in Ontario and dismisses notions of patents. The stuff is too easy to d- duplicate, and it costs $80,000 to file an application. He rejects offers to outright sell his creations, like Firepaste, because he frequently sells off shares to fund their development. By the time I got Firepaste to the point of testing, 70% of it was owned by investors. So when a university wants it, I only have 30% left. They're not interested in that. And yet, Herdebees can't stop inventing. He still feels compelled to put in 21-hour days refining his projects. His current plan is to find funding for the Apache, the latest version of his Trojan suit, which he says protects 93% of a user's body and offers 96% flexibility. A prototype will cost $70,000. It'll take six to eight months to build by hand. I'll try to market it to law enforcement, like SWAT. He needs another $100,000 to rebuild the Godlight, renamed the EMR-5, which he now claims will only cure breast cancer. He wants to take it to Johns Hopkins for testing. So, Well, I'm excited for SWAT teams to be using his inventions. <laughs> yes, yes, I do support that. Thanks to that dick compass, they'll never get lost at the wrong house again. Could really save a lot of lives. <laughs> That's the problem SWAT teams have is poor land nav. I think so, I, I think the SWAT team should wear that. Every SWAT team member should be forced to wear that bear suit for everything they do. <laughs> yes, the only thing SWAT could get do. <laughs> so tragically, Troy died in like 2012, I think, in a fiery oh no. collision. <laughs> yeah, he drove right into a fuel tanker. <laughs> Oh no! Um, that's oh not no. Yeah, it's very sad. He was 54 years o- old. His widow says that he s- swerved his car, or the police say that he swerved his car into the pathway of the truck. He had been very depressed because he'd encountered financial difficulties uh, and had not been able to sell his inventions. Um, obviously, this is very sad for them. He seems like, a, despite everything, he was a fun guy to be around, and then yeah. fell on hard times. Um, it is it is a depressing end to the story, but 
Troy lives on in the the documentary project Grizzly and in the impact he had on all of our hearts and in the memory that you know even if your dreams are are crazy you should you should try and live them because who knows maybe maybe you'll develop a suit that allows you to fight a grizzly bear in hand to hand combat <laughs> anyway that's that's this hero of the internet episode i hope you all found it edifying that is that is an inspiring inspiring tale mhm yeah, um, it's 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 you know, he's fucking more of an inventor than Elon Musk ever has been. <laughs> that's that's true. right, and he would have been a better ruler of Twitter. Um, that's if, that's true. If well, Troy I mean, was in charge of Twitter, he, he's he's really the last guy from the old era of capitalism where you would actually like return your profits into into R and D instead of just like paying Elon Musk like forty seven million dollars to hire a bunch of consultants who also make forty seven million dollars. Yeah, one thing you have to say about Troy is he was not he was not in this for the money. This was a man who believed more strongly than I think I've ever believed in anything about the idea of building a suit of armor to fight grizzly bears. Um, and whatever else you can say about Troy, he was absolutely, absolutely honest in that belief. And I think I'm going to end by playing a brief montage of him testing out his first version of the armored suit which looks more or less like a set of heavy baseball armor like it looks like someone wearing body armor and a baseball helmet or a sorry a football helmet in fact i think it just is a football helmet but yeah here's here's troy's early tests in 1988 oh that's definitely a football helmet <laughs> that one looks kind of cool that one looks pretty cool, yeah. too. Yeah, they, they look yeah. increasingly space marine in this period, and he has some <laughs> range of motion. <laughs> I just hits him with a bat. His friend just, just beating him with, with baseball bat. Doesn't even have his helmet on. <laughs> just knocking him down with what looked like two by fours. <laughs> It does. It does look more. Oh my gosh! He just that's a he just got the He just he keeps getting Ewoks right in the face. Yeah, it's it's this, amazing. That last one looks super Space Marine ass. Yeah, yeah. Some of them looked pretty cool. Um, and he didn't die from anything related to the suit testing. So no. you got to give him one thing. He knew how to make a suit of armor that would not get you killed doing the kind of shit Troy Herdebees like to do to his armor. It seems like he was good if, with like with like mm -hmm. blunt force trauma armor. That's did, right. Did, did anyone ever do like a, a CTE skit like <laughs> test on him after he died? Oh, no. Because <laughs> this this man had a thousand micro head injuries. Absolutely. I mean, the, I think the real lesson here is that he, he was able he was he was able to continue his work mm -hmm. thanks to Canadian healthcare. Um, <laughs> yeah, he did. he was probably like five percent of the entire Canadian healthcare system budget, just dealing with all of Troy's concussions. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's the story of Troy Herdebees. Uh I hope you've all found it useful. Um, go into the world, and if your dream is to create a suit of powered armor that will allow you to defeat a grizzly bear in unarmed combat, then by God, you know, shoot for the stars. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. In a world where you end up standing in a two-hour line to buy mediocre and not climate-friendly water. Sorry, this is it could happen here. Uh, uh, this is Sophie. I, I really wanted to do that for a really long time. <laughs> I have, well, now I want to watch it. Uh, yeah, me too. Thank you. Uh, the, the, those voices you hear are James Stout and Margaret Kiljoy, and uh, we're here. We're here to talk about uh, the the water crisis that seems to be getting worse and. The, these United States, uh, yeah, James. What's 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 happening? Well, uh, a number of things are happening, right? Um, I think we should probably emphasize, like at the start, that water contaminants have been affecting people outside of like the kind of colonial core for a very long time, long time, and, and uh, legacy corporate media, whatever you want to call it, hasn't given it a solitary fuck about it until it affected people inside the colonial core. So, um, what we're seeing right now is. In two places, uh, east, I believe it's pronounced Palestine, right? I believe so too, yeah. Yeah, okay, East Palestine, Ohio, uh, and in Philadelphia. uh, I believe it's pronounced Phil-A-Delphia. Ah, okay, it's like someone's name, like Phil. It was named for Phil-A-Delphia, the the founder of the city. Phil from Delphia, like the Oracle. 
Ah, I see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he predicted that one day uh, there would be a spill uh, from a PLC chemical plant near the Delaware River. And famously, he was right. Uh, we've, we've, yeah, and they built the city there anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they, uh, for years, they've been so angry about not having a chemical plant, they've just uh, climbed lampposts and thrown batteries at opposing football teams. But Yeah, and I feel really good about starting with such heavy jokes about this thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's like three million you, people, I think. Anyway. Yeah, if you're in Philadelphia, uh, we do want to express solidarity with you, I guess, as you... Uh, wonder what the fuck to do about your water supply, which is currently contaminated, uh, as we understand, by something called butyl acrylate, uh, which is a chemical that is found in paint. Uh, and it the, re- the reason that there is a paint chemical in your drinking water if you live in Philadelphia is that a PLC manufacturing chemical plant called, I think it's Trinseo, T-R-I-N-S-E-O, had a leak and that leak went into a storm drain that storm drain went into the delaware river and that river feeds into the samuel s baxter water treatment plant uh and obviously that water treatment plant feeds into the tap that you turn on to drink water when you live in your house and this has as it always does when there are like these somewhat bungled announcements of chemical contamination in drinking water uh, caused people to rush out to buy bottled water, which is an understandable response if you think you're not going to be able to drink water, which is cause people to wait in long lines to access uh, sometimes like a limited supply of water. And what we wanted to talk about today a little bit was not so much like what to do if you're in Philadelphia right now, um, but like how we can better prepare to be ready for water emergencies, water shortages, water contamination, things like that, um, which is why Margaret has joined us because she is the prepper anarchist queen and uh, <laughs> knows a lot about these things so yeah margaret should we i think you said you wanted to break this down by like bad things that can be in your water and things you can do to get those bad things away right yeah although i will say only a minority of this information directly relates to people who are dealing with toxic chemical spills so mm-hmm. if we're I have a lot of information about general water safety, long-term storage of water, things that you don't want in your water, how to get those things out of your water. Um, And I know you have a lot of experience with that stuff too. Um, But the very specific thing that people first in Ohio and now in Pennsylvania are dealing with um, of chemical stuff is worse than other stuff and way harder to get out, especially on a DIY level. so I don't know what what feels best. Like, should we do an overview, or should we try and first talk about the chemical stuff, and then talk about like the fun, easy stuff, like not getting giardia when you're camping? Yeah, let's maybe start out with the kind of uh, this is the scary. You know, you you can't buy a life straw for this. Fear first, yeah. and I think, fun later. Yeah, because <laughs> but the people might be listening, and they might be afraid, or they might be concerned, or they might be in in one of these places, right? Uh, or Flint, Michigan, where we still haven't fucking fixed the water. Yeah. Um. So yeah, let, let's sake, start with fucking Flint, Michigan. What a just disastrous incompetence. Yeah, I mean, it's, <gasps> yeah, uh, it's it's extremely sad that the country that is as rich as any country has ever managed to be in in human history is still uh, poisoning people with water. But yeah, yeah. Let, let's start with that. Let let's start with what to do uh, when you get a reverse nine one one phone call telling you not to drink from your tap. I mean, honestly, going out and getting bottled water was the right move. Um, or also since people did have a heads up that their tap water was safe for a period of time, um, 
storing water in various containers is the right move. Because once your water is contaminated with chemicals, uh, it's really hard to get it out. The main method that, well, on an industrial scale, the thing that someone can use, the way they treat wastewater with butyl acetate, I didn't write down the name in my yeah, notes. Acrylate, I think. Acrylate. Um, yeah. Oh, like acrylic. That makes sense because yeah. latex paint. It's something called a fluidized bed reactor, which frankly I did not know about until I started doing this specific research for this specific chemical. Um, people who are like more at a high science level will know more about this. This is basically like you're using different bacteria to um, eat and I don't know, fucking clean out this shit. This is not what's going to be happening in your kitchen sink anytime soon. This is not going to be part of your Brita filter anytime soon. Uh, ironically, and this is not, hmm, how am I going to say this? Don't drink this chemical water if you have any possibility, right? If you can get other water, do that. And I believe in our current society, it is a better and safer bet to get water from elsewhere. If you were in some situation, which I suspect most people are not, I suspect most people could access supply lines. If you're in some situation where the only water available to you has this, these types of chemicals in it, the most likely guess about a way to deal with it is activated carbon charcoal um, and is... Uh, is actually the home filters that a lot of people use, is your Brita filter, is your Berkey, although I'll talk some shit on Berkey in a little bit. Um, and and when we go over the more like nitty-gritty details about each filtration method, maybe we can we can talk more about this. But basically it is like it is not tested to do this. No one has ever been like, man, what if we get a bunch of butyl acrylate in our water? Will our Brita filter it out? No one is running tests on this because it is not a thing that normally is in the water historically, although clearly it is often in the water now. Um, however, the method of filtration of the various home level acts, various home level methods of filtration, adsorption is what it's called with a D instead of a B, is the method that is perceived as most effective at reducing chemicals in water. However, again, we're talking about like, maybe this reduces some chemicals, maybe, not, oh, you run this through this and now you're fine. Yeah, yeah. It, it's there's a lot of things that could get in our water, right? That we don't really have like any any like decent research on how to get them out of our water. Um, yeah. So, so, Margaret James, is there mm -hmm. is there a say say you're not living in a place where you get a text letting you know that in Tuesday at three p.m. your water will not be safe to drink, <laughs> yeah. which is mm -hmm. really just. <laughs> uh, is there a home testing kit or a a water testing kit that that is accessible for for most individuals or what what resources can people use to to, to understand their water at home cuz uh, I'm not really going to trust the government on that. I, yeah. Um Margaret, do you want to take that? I only know about I do not know about testing for butyl acrylate. Um, okay. I think that this is the kind of thing that they are not, people are not prepared for, uh, like on a society level, I don't, sure. I believe. I could be wrong. All of the water testing that I have done has tended to be around 
Like I live on a well, right? And so there's a lot of testing things that are available to tell you the acidity of your water, the hardness of your water, which is how how many dissolved minerals, um, whether or not your water contains things like lead and arsenic, uh, heavy metals, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, and also bacteria, right? Like all of the stuff that we normally prepare to filter out of water there are home tests available to you that you can use to determine. Um, I don't know, and I wish I had done more research ahead of time. There's like some talk about like possible smells and stuff um, for some of these, but I, I don't feel confident. Yeah, I mean, I know there's the EWG's like website where you can put in your 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 zip code and get more information on if there's been contamination or anything like that. But like mm-hmm. that's, you know, reported things, not necessarily like on an individual level for testing. Um, yeah. I definitely do that anytime I have moved anywhere. I'll type in my zip code and, and then I go, ah, that sounds really <laughs> bad. Um, I don't yeah. like that. But yeah, you can find out, you know, once you put in, you can find out who who like you, you put in your zip code on. Uh, this is just EWG.org. You put in your zip code and you can put who you pay for water and then it goes in and it tells you, you know, it's really, it's really fun Four in my, in my neighborhood four EWG health guidelines, 14 contaminants. Oh, congrats. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, a combination of two, is probably your best bet. Like, unless you happen to have yeah. a laboratory, like, cause there's stuff coming. Like if, if there is like lead, uh, like in between the water mains and or like you know wherever the EWD is getting its information and, and your tap, then you're still risking like heavy metal contaminants, right? Or if you're on a well, you should test that. I think it's every year, right? You're supposed to test your well water. Yeah, I probably Determine. should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know you'll be fine. You'll know. But yeah, I I think it's important that like you, I have definitely got super sick from water that looked super clear, had no odor. Uh, looked yeah. fine and I have drunk from turbid as fuck stagnant water and not been sick so like your nose is not going to tell you um, you, you do need yeah. some kind of help yeah let's talk about storing water first and then we'll talk about the more sort of established solutions for the, the more expected contaminants I guess so, yeah. how would you go about let's say you're not in uh, Philadelphia right now and, and you want to prepare for something that could happen in your area. How would you go about storing water? So the easiest way is that you go get bottled water. If it is sealed and you keep it out of the sun, you keep it out of the heat, um, even though you're, it's supposedly good for a year or two, whatever, I feel like really nervous on this. Like, this is what's safe, even though it's not safe, right? But um, you can, but water itself doesn't go bad. That is a thing that is worth understanding. Left to its own devices, water does not go bad. Water goes bad when there's like something in it that replicates, like bacteria or something like that. Um, or when something leaks into it. The main reason that you want to keep your water out of the sun and out of the heat is because if you're storing it in plastic, that can eventually um, kind of leach into it as yeah. the plastic degrades. And that I don't know. There's probably long-term health effects, but like I would drink a water bottle that has been in the backseat of my car for a year before I would drink butyl acrylate water. Um, And which is, I mean, it's, I guess that's just plastic or plastic, pick your poison, but, um, but yeah, so, so bottled water is generally very safe um, and it is sealed and it 
has no particular reason to go bad. You don't want to store it next to kerosene or gasoline. Like if you are the kind of person who keeps five-gallon jug of gasoline around, you want that in a different place than your water. Um, usually you want the gasoline outside your house in an outbuilding. Everyone lives on acreage in the rural areas of the country, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so many outbuildings around here. Yeah, everyone has outbuildings. Yeah, I just go out to my urban barn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, okay, well, okay, then the other thing, if, if I'm actually preparing, go out and get some five-gallon jerry cans. Um, you're going to pay between $20 and $50, and you'll get a little bit of different quality depending on that. You want something that is BPA-free. You want something that is um, opaque and you want something that is like not really bigger than four or five gallons because it's clumsy and unwieldy. Yeah. Uh, you also don't want to stack these things unless they specifically say this one is stackable to such and such depth. Like most stackable containers are also only stackable one or two um, high, well, two or three high. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, like, frankly, on some level, that's what there is. Okay, and if you're going to fill your own water containers, there are a couple weird things about it. One, you people argue about how often you should rotate it. I, I rotate mine about once a year. You should theoretically rotate them somewhere between six months and a year or something like that, um, depending on how you store it. The other thing is that if you are... I actually think living off of a well, you should probably rotate it more often. If you're on munis municipal water, don't run it through your Brita before you store it because that Brita is going to pull out all the chlorine, all the bleach. And people are like, whoa, I don't want to drink bleach. I listen to that punk song, Dead, Dead Milkman. Um, whatever. Uh, People don't want to drink bleach, right? You actually do want to drink tiny amounts of bleach. Um, you, you want <laughs> tiny amounts of... Miracle medical solution. <laughs> yeah. Um, it keeps bacteria from growing. So if you filter out all of that and then you put it the water in a thing, if there's the tiniest little bacteria that got through, it's like, sweet, the defenses are down, you know? Um, yeah. So, but yeah, honestly, storing water, like people like, they're going to sell you lots of products and like prepper sites are full of people selling you shit. Um, but it's just a matter of like finding containers and filling them with water and then rotating them every now and then. And it's not actually that big of a deal or super complicated. That's my take on it. Um, yeah, I used to yeah. live off of, I used to live entirely off grid and then had to just drink water out of 50 gallon drums. And I just, I didn't even, you know what? I'm not going to say how bad my practices were because I don't want anyone <laughs> to emulate me. What were you going to say, James? <laughs> I was going to say, if you're like, if you're storing on a scale, I don't know why, let's say you uh, mm -hmm. live on a compound in the desert, um, you know, you can get big water tanks, right? Um, I yeah. was looking at moving out to the desert a couple of yeah. years ago, and I didn't. Uh, but yeah, you, you can get big water tanks. They're pretty cheap. You should, some places, it's about a it's dollar a gallon last time I looked for like a 1,500-gallon tank. Yeah, um, I found them cheap, uh, like Gov surplus ones as well, pretty often. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Um, for we'll talk for later. Yeah, yeah, we'll uh, <laughs> I'll send you some send you some links. Uh, but you you might want to check it. Some places you actually can't legally have those. Um, it's it, it's getting better now with that stuff, but um, you do want to check on that. I think if you're or you could get like a water buffalo, which is a an industrial device for shipping water. Um, you can probably pick up those pretty cheap. No, it's an well. it's an animal. I don't want yes, you, to, you don't dehumanize it, calling it an industrial machine. It's an animal. It has feelings. 
Yeah, it does. Uh, and you just keep that in your backyard. And then what that does is attack anyone who comes after your water. So it's quite effective. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, they are tough as nails. So I've had some run-ins with buffalo. Um, uh, <laughs> badass animals. Okay. Uh, another thing, I guess, that like, if you're like going hardcore on this and storing thousands of gallons of water, uh, maybe you could invest in something like a chlorine maker. And that way, if you do like mess up with your storage, I guess that that could maybe give you some leeway in terms of purifying afterwards. Is that fair to say, Margaret? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like chlorine maker is the next step up from basically because like bleach itself does go bad. And if you, it's not shelf stable for I don't remember how long it lasts. Um, it's not indefinitely shelf stable. And so people often, especially in uh, places that access to clean water and stuff. Um, I will say, though, when we get into it, chemical treatment is really good for the main stuff that people normally worry about, such as protozoa, bacteria, and viruses. Mm-hmm. But once again, isn't going to do shit for some stuff that goes bad. Yeah. I think it might, there's one thing, maybe cryptosporidium. There's something that chlorine specifically doesn't work for. Oh, that's um, right. Actually, yeah, it's actually not very good at protozoa. It's weirdly good at viruses. And then, whereas most of the filters are not good at viruses and are good at bacteria and protozoa. So we should probably explain these different things, right? These right. different ways you can treat your water. Okay. There's a bunch of stuff that you can be in your water that you don't wish was in the water. The one that is like kind of off the top of my head, the one that I think about the most because I've had to deal with it and it sucked, um, are protozoa. The two big ones are Giardia and Cryptosporidium. And these are tiny little animals in the water. If you can look at pictures of them, they're really cute. And they make you shit a lot forever, <laughs> sometimes until you die. Um mostly immunocompromised folks but everyone really unhappy and if you're in a survival situation already diarrhea is like no laughing matter your inability to keep in fluids and nutrients will dramatically affect your your chance of survival um so that's protozoa they are the biggest of these things and therefore sort of the easiest to do actually don't know whether they're bigger in bacteria or not then there's bacteria which it can also be in water and do bad stuff to you and then there's viruses and viruses can be in the water and do bad stuff to you largely in the united states and people don't worry about viruses in water um and that's not because our heads are in the sand. It's because we don't have as many viruses in our water. Yeah. Um, uh, then there's chemicals you could have in your water. We don't like them. There's dirt that can be in your water, which is just like not fun. Um, there's heavy metals like lead and iron um, that can have deleterious effects on your health. Some people want to get water hardening minerals like uh, calcium and magnesium out of their water, but you actually yeah. don't want to get rid of all of them. That's the catch. That's what we're going to have to talk about because your body wants some of those things. They mostly just like make your house has all the all the yeah. plumbing breaks. Um, that's like the main stuff. There's also things like nitrates that I don't understand well enough to talk about. How we get rid of things. Yeah. The most common way that like backpackers and stuff who are a lot of the people who DIY this on a regular basis use is something called filtration or I'm going to call filtration. Um First, use, you screen your water, as in you get out the large chunks. Usually people use like a bandana or a sock or just some piece of cloth, right? And you want to use that so you're not gumming up your, uh, your filter. And then it goes into something where it's forced through a membrane with micropores. These used to be ceramic, but these days uh, they're like a bunch of tiny little tubes like the internet. And 
most of these are basically the tubes have holes in them that are so small that it stops protozoa and bacteria from going through it. That is its like main claim to fame. It is very effective at it. Um, now that they're not ceramic, you don't have to clean it like every fucking gallon. And these are really good. Uh, top brands that I am not sponsored by are Sawyer and Life Straw. They're going to use slightly different methods. People have opinions about them. I'm not going to offer mine right now. Um, and they're measured in the, the, the size of the holes. Anything that's like one micron is small enough to stop most protozoa. Most of these ones are either 0.1 or 0.2. These don't block viruses. Um, so they make ones that have even smaller holes that can deal with viruses. And this also blocks microplastics, but, you know, whatever. Then there's chemical treatment. Chemical treatment, the yep. two most common ones are bleach, chlorine, or iodine. And there's also, like, chemical tablets that you can buy that are, like, worth keeping around. They weigh yeah. almost nothing, whatever. Um, yeah. I am not going to give you the chart of how much bleach to add to your water. And don't just go listen to me and add bleach to your water. Fucking look it up. <laughs> Uh, do not use color safe bleach. Do not use scented bleach. It's just disinfected bleach. It'll probably either come in 6% or 8.25% sodium hypochlorite. Chlorite. Um, scented and bleach sounds so gross. Just that those combinations of words. Yeah. I know. What, what do they scent it with? Uh, the blood of, I don't know. I got poison. Nothing. Yeah, yeah. Poison not blood. like lavender then. <laughs> I hope it's lavender. It smelled like really hot like dogs or something. <gasps> that sounds so gross. Yeah. Ew. I used to wear lavender all the time. I actually I stopped for two reasons. First, I stopped when I was in college because like my girlfriend was like, "You smell like soap," and was like really mad at me. Um, <laughs> if you're listening, whatever, I don't care. Uh, and then I stopped <laughs> okay. because get one in, Margaret. Go on, go yeah, off. If you're listening, what's good? <laughs> <laughs> Look at me now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for turning me on to lots of cool stuff. Um, that was much healthier than yeah. I would have been. I'm proud of you. <laughs> and then uh, um, the other reason I stopped wearing lavender is it attracts ticks. If you're out in the out in the woods. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. So that's chemical treatment. <laughs> chemical treatment is really good for bacteria and viruses. It's not great for parasites. It is a really good backup system, right? Um, actually, I'll go over the fucking king of all of them for for bacteria virus and parasites you want to get rid of it you fucking boil your water um yeah. the like classic way to deal with it is you boil your water and it only needs to get above 60 degrees celsius uh which is like 140 something in regular human um uh, and i actually don't know the conversion i actually no when I you're talking about quibble regular oh, yeah. human is well, fahrenheit <laughs> okay fahrenheit is really good about humans because zero is cold and 100 is hot yes celsius is really good about water, water. <laughs> so we're we actually are talking about water right now so celsius is the proper scale because it goes from zero is freezing to 100 is boiling yeah um i think go ahead yeah it's uh you know what we should do before before we talk further mm -hmm. about water do you know what will not make you shit yourself to death uh reagan coins <laughs> yeah it's, it probably is ronald reagan coins again all right we're back thank you very much uncle ron uh for continuing to pay for my healthcare and insulin needs so yeah. margaret we were we were talking about uh boiling fuck boiling water that's it uh, yeah 
Yeah, so how long do we need to boil stuff for? Does so, it change depending on what we got? It does, but not really. It's like the, all of the main... and. In- do the, do the actual instructions. Overkill yeah. is better than regular get killed, right? Um, yes. But most shit dies off at 60 degrees Celsius, which is below the boiling point of water, even at high elevation. However, yes. basically the deal is at, you uh, want to boil your water for one minute at sea level, three minutes above 5,000 feet. Um, or five kilometers. No, wait, no. Go on. <laughs> it's not 1,000 feet. To a kilometer. <laughs> it's just under two kilometers. <laughs> okay. Um, and... Yeah, so so boiling water is actually the one of the main things you can do. It doesn't get rid of everything. It gets rid of those three things, protozoa, bacteria, and viruses, very effectively. And that is most of the time what most people are treating water for. A lot of the other stuff is like long-term health effects, like heavy metals and chemicals, right? Um, yeah. Other methods that you can use. The other like kind of gold standard, which isn't as good as it seems like it should be, is distillation. Distillation gets out lots of stuff. Distillation is basically you evaporate the water and then let it run down into another container. Um, you're moonshining your own water. And um, and you can do this DIY fairly well. And there's like solar stills that are really cool. I've never actually built one. I've always wanted yeah, to. Yeah, they are cool. Um, the downside is if you live off of distilled water for a long time, it gets out the magnesium and the calcium. It gets out the the minerals that you actually want in your water. So it can have negative effects on your long-term health if you only drink distilled water. The main thing that distillation does that I think no other method on this does, besides a reverse osmosis, which I'm not really going to get into, um, yeah. is it desalinates water. Um, yeah. So, go ahead. That's a big deal, right? Because like, if we look at long-term water insecurity like certainly where i live uh mm-hmm. we live in a place where people like to play golf in the desert mm-hmm. and uh, that, that has become an issue as far as water supplies go and so desalination is, is often proposed as like a way to deal with our water crisis in california and the, the fact that the colorado river like is yeah. getting lower and lower and we rely on it and but like you said lots of these methods aren't going to pull the salt out of water right then like, you drink seawater Right. Um, but this one does. And so, I mean, actually, I don't really care about the health of golf course. I have actually negative <laughs> feelings about the health of golf courses. Um, you and me both. But theoretically, maybe watering your lawn with the desalinated distilled water and then drinking the water that actually has minerals in it. But then again, like maybe the plants need that shit too. I don't fucking know. Yeah. Um, so, and in distillation... Um, it's very good at getting out heavy metals also like iron and lead. Um, and it, the reason it gets out the bacteria and viruses is not because they can't evaporate, but because they die getting boiled because you boil to distill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and some pesticides are filtered out if their boiling point is greater than the boiling point of water. Um, benzene and tulene, which I don't know what is, I don't know what tulene is. Um, these are examples of things that do not get distilled out. Then, there's a couple more. There's adsorption. Adsorption rules. This is the thing that I always misspell. And so that's why I emphasize the adsorption. Um, I don't do really understand. Well, go ahead. How do we adsorb? Is that just like absorption with adverts? What? You know, it's like, yeah, it's like uh, I took three years of Latin and all I remember is that ad means towards and ab means away from. Um, and maybe it's Agricoli is either farmer or farmhouse. Yeah, I got puer 
Puerine. Sumas S. Sumas S. is Aramasarat. Aramasaramasarant. I can remember that one now. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, there you go. You've all yeah. learned something today. Yeah. Uh, I wish that my school had made me take Spanish instead of letting me take some bullshit like Latin. <laughs> yeah. um, teach myself Spanish. Yeah, exactly. So adsorption is good for pesticides, heavy metals, heavy metals, chemicals, viruses, and bad tastes. It's the only one of these things that I'm aware of that actually use can get rid of bad taste because this is pulling out all the weird stuff in the water. And what it is, is it uses activated carbon, which is basically just some shit that's fucking burned and then crunched up yeah. real small. It is a huge surface area because it's like little powder, right? Um, and then the water passes through it. And then by some weird science shit, the bad stuff tends to stick to the carbon. Um, this is great. This is what your Brita filter does. This is what your uh, Berkey does. This is what your pure filter does. Um, it It's not as good, I believe, for bacteria and stuff. And specifically, the biggest problem with these things is that bacteria can grow on them. Um, and so some people, I mean, that's why you replace it every so often. It's not because it's like slow or clogged. It's like literally unhealthy. Um and so sometimes what people do is they treat for bacteria with UV or some other method, bleach, whatever, all the other shit that we talked about. We haven't talked about UV yet. Um, after it goes to the carbon filter. I'm really excited about like kind of learning more about these because you can theoretically DIY carbon, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, you definitely could, right? Like, uh, I yeah. know that it's not the same as this, but uh, one of the things you can do if you're in the back country is like if you have water with a lot of turbidity, which mm -hmm. is um, stuff in the water, right? Like, uh, like if, if you can't see through the water, you know, if it's got a lot of cloudiness, uh, you can use white ash from a fire uh, and that will increase the rate at which it deposits the sediment, if you see what I mean. So you have Oh, interesting. Because it, yeah. it sticks to it and then slowly filters exactly, to the yeah. bottom of the... Huh. I think the gold standard is a loom, which is something using canning. Uh, okay. And that increases it even quicker. But uh, yeah, you can use white ash from a fire if you're dealing with. That's I cool. Don't think that's, I don't think that's activated carbon. I think that's a, a different mechanism. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. Um, and then one of the methods that is actually mostly done on an industrial scale that actually is like, I think, the main way that people filter water in this world is through sand. And I didn't do enough research about um, there's both slow, slow sand filters and fast sand filters. And some of them, like, literally depend on certain bacteria, good bacteria, like, having a healthy culture of them that, like, eat the bad stuff and things. I, I used to know more about that than I do currently. And then the last one I'm going to cover, okay, then there's reverse osmosis, which you might have a kitchen thing that does, and it... Um, it also removes minerals. It's a very effective method of filtering out lots of stuff. It also... I don't know, it causes wastewater and is complicated in some ways. And then there's UV disinfection. And this is like one of the ones that gets touted as this like, this is going to save the developing world or whatever, right? Um, yeah. And UV disinfection is cool and good. Uh, basically, it uses UV light to kill off um, bacteria, parasites, and viruses. Again, these three things that are the main things people are usually going yeah. for. Um, the biggest downside of UV disinfection, there's two of them. One is that it requires low turbidity water. Thanks for introducing that term. Uh, clear water. It has to be fairly clear water because it's about light, right? That makes yeah. sense. Um, and because you have to like be careful to do it right. You just have to like actually get all of it with all of it. Um, yeah. So this is why I haven't, like for a moment I got really excited about these things. And then in the end I was like, 
I like my water filter that I already have. <laughs> yeah, I think with UV filtration as well, it's been big in the outdoor world kind of relatively recently. You have to be conscious of storing it in a opaque container afterwards because the bacteria can UV like reactivate. Oh, um, yeah. If it's like any of it that it doesn't get is like, fuck, yeah, it's my time. Yeah, because it stops them reproducing. That's how it. Uh, oh, it's, interesting. They're still in there, but they don't. It, so it doesn't really matter. You drink them and then you pass them through your system and it's fine. But if they reproduce, that's when you get sick. So somehow they can UV reactivate. Um, so like if you have a, you know, the classic like uh, like through hiking thing is to use a smart water bottle, right? Because it's cheap mm-hmm. and it's dirty. And But if you were UV filtering and then traveling in your smart water bottle and then putting that on the back of your pack and hiking all day, uh, you might get in some difficulty. So yeah. Um, I don't know it's not yeah i haven't really messed with it much uh I, i've like like yeah i have my comfortable setup and that's what i like to use and i will say that like uh, something that people who don't go camping much might not be aware of there's almost nowhere in the united states that you can be confidently drink wild water without it without risking something like giardia um yeah. There are places where you can directly from a spring is the most likely to be good. Um, people used to say that you can you can drink high elevation water if you're up in an alpine area because there's like no cows or whatever. Because like Giardia and I, I believe also crypto, but I'm um, the other poop transferred crypto, the Cryptosporodia, not the not the <laughs> multi level marketing scam. Um, they. Um, it's it's passed in the the fecal oral tradition. What's the word here? Uh, <laughs> the fecal oral tradition. Uh, there's a word here. I'm forgetting. Mouse pathway. <laughs> yeah, pathway. Yeah, and so um, because it's passed that way, it's like basically the fact that there's livestock everywhere is the reason that's not safe to drink the water. And so people are like, oh, if you go up high enough, you're safe. But there's still animals up there, and there's also like more and more hikers up there. Almost anywhere you're going to be hiking, someone else has hiked, and someone else yeah. has hiked, and they have drank the water without filtering it because they're not thinking properly. And then they've shit in, not in a hole, but just shit somewhere on the ground because they're also a bad person in that way. Yeah. Um, and so they've like tested a while ago at the, in the high Sierras that um, there's Giardia everywhere, um, which doesn't necessarily mean it's going to make you sick, but it, can make you sick so it's just like worth knowing that this is the reason that backpackers know so much about water filtration although again they don't know as much about chemical spill filtration which is why i had to go and learn more about that less because i'm a backpacker more because i used to live off grid but um yeah they're different like uh like there are there are definitely a lot of products out there that are very affordable that work for like that specific specifically the giardia concern right which is one that most people have and that's probably if you're like if you're in a place where you hear there's industrial water contamination and you go to REI and you buy a, a Sawyer make a tap filter, for instance, um, it just mm-hmm. clamps onto your tap, it probably won't work for the stuff that you're concerned about. Um, yeah. But it will work if you're yeah off a yeah. well and you have Giardia or something. Yeah. And it also won't work for like lead, which is one of the reasons why the carbon filters are the more common ones at home because uh, city water, that is a, a higher... You know, if you live in some cities, you're going to have lead in your water, right? Yeah, because um, we used it in pipes for decades. Yeah. But I don't know. Um, oh, let's talk shit on Berkey's really quick. Yeah, let's do it. What, what's up with Berkey? Why are they bad? So I was like, I posted the other day after this thing, because that's my fun joy of being a prepper is going to Twitter and being like, 
here's what I know about that thing, you know, whenever a thing happens. Um, while, like, safe on my mountaintop and uh, <laughs> drinking out of my well, which, whatever, has its own problems. Um, I'll take those problems anyway. Okay, so... Um, so I posted about this and then I pointed out that like overall there's like the different filters that you can have at home. And then the only one that seems to sort of do it all is the Berkey. Um, it's this very expensive brand. You've probably seen them in your hippie friend's house or you're the hippie and there's yeah. one in your house. Um, there's one in my house. And it's a big silver canister that looks like it comes from the 50s or whatever. And, uh, and it's a filter. And it somehow filters more than everything else. And the way that it does that is by lying. Um, or rather, I don't know what I... Uh, <laughs> using marketing. The way it, yeah, the way it does it is it says it can do these things and it is not certified to the, what is it, a NSF slash ANSI standard that all of your other filters are testing themselves to. So everyone else is saying, we have passed this following certification and Berkey is saying... Oh, we tested it and it does all this stuff. All the other ones probably do kind of all this stuff too, but the only things that they're actually certified to do they are what they say they do. And so Berkey basically charges a mint in exchange for uh, using their own testing standards instead of the testing <laughs> standards of other people. Independent yeah. testers. It, Google Berkey wire cutter and you'll find a good article that where people conducted a bunch of tests. Um, and it's a shame because it would be nice to have this sort of all-in-one filter because it's very annoying. If you want to filter something out of your water, you have to go, okay, what's in my water that I don't want? And then you have to go find the filter for that. And it's not going to be the same as the other filters. It's not going to be the same as the other filter. Like, oh, you live somewhere with lead in your pipes. You can't buy a regular Brita. You got to buy the, the lead pipe Montreal special Brita, yeah. you know? Um, and like, you know, you want an under sink water filter. Well, do you want this one or this one or this one? And it, it it would be nice if there was a, uh, uh, what yeah, it, like a buy once, cry click. once. Yeah. Yeah. Go to Amazon two days later, you're fine kind of situation. Yeah. But there isn't one. No. I was going to go over, like, just in, in case people are curious more about the backcountry stuff, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. I have uh, three different levels of stuff that I use for backcountry. If I'm just going out and I don't think I'm going to filter water, I just take a stainless steel single wall water bottle and some uh, iodine or another chemical purifier. Um, iodine works pretty well, but you don't want to be using it long term. It's not good for you long term for your thyroid. And then I'll filter it through like a buff or a kefir or something to get the turbidity out and use that. Um, if it's a trip where I'm just in the backcountry in America, I take a squeezy uh filtration system catadine b3 is the one i tend to use um and you want to have a dirty bag and a clean bottle right so you're squeezing from the dirty water into the clean water um and then if i'm going somewhere for work where there are virus risks and where it might be like what you'd call like a non-permissive environment a place where you don't want to hang around near a water source for a long time because it's dangerous uh, i have this thing called an msr guardian which is not cheap and you probably don't need it for what you're doing. But if you, if you are concerned about viruses, it has a dirty bag and a clean bag and it's a hang filter. So you can fill up three liters of water, bugger off to somewhere safe, hang it up and let that filter from the dirty bag into the clean bag. And then uh, you're not standing by the water filtering or pumping. Um, and I've used that in some yeah. pretty fetid situations and been fine. And I'll say though, the thing that I used off grid was I used a Sawyer, um, just a, a regular Sawyer, but 
water filter. They're like 30 bucks. And I attached it to a five gallon bucket with some hoses and then I gravity fed it and I just left it dripping from one five gallon bucket to another. And that's for a stationary place in the United States that worked for me. Yeah, I can see that working really well. Uh, Margaret, is there anything, where can people learn more about prepping? Would there be a podcast they could listen to? You mean one that just went weekly? Live Like the World is Dying. I am one of the hosts of Live Like the World is Dying. Uh, The reason it went weekly is now there's more hosts. And you can listen to that wherever you listen to podcasts every Friday. Um, And soon you'll be able to hear James on it. But I don't know when. Ooh, you just have to listen to all of them. Yeah. Uh, Where where can people see you gloating on Twitter from your mountaintop? Uh, Magpie Killjoy until I finally get sick of Twitter, which is increasingly likely every single day. Mm The hell site. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much, Margaret. That yeah, was uh, thanks for having very me. informative. You are welcome. All right, bye, everyone. Bye. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hello and welcome to It Could Happen Here with me, Andrew, of the YouTube channel Andrewism. And today I'm joined by 
Garrison is here. Greetings. And Mia also here. Hello. And I wanted to talk about the idea of the noble savage. It's something that people have occasionally brought up in my comment section uh, when I discuss really anything related to, hmm, maybe there's something to learn, something to be learned from the indigenous people of um, pre-colonial period. There's often this accusation levied against any sort of positive um, representation of their society, any sort of generous reading of their society as something to be scoffed at, as something to be ridiculed, as something to be, you know, seen as perpetuating this trope of the noble savage. And so I was in some sort of, at first I was in sort of a, um, I got into a sort of defense mode and I was like, well, hmm, I really don't want to do that, right? I don't want to create this caricature of indigenous peoples in my videos um, that, you know, falsely represents all their complexities and stuff. Obviously, every group throughout history has had many layers to them. And then in reading Dawn of Everything by um, David Graeber and David Wengrew, ended up stumbling upon even further information on the subject. And so that's something that I want to talk about. You know, this idea, this, where the idea of the noble savage came from, how it's used, and I think how we should be approaching it today. But before I even get into all of that, are you all familiar with this term and how it's used? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I don't know, it, it, it is interesting in the way that it kind of like, I don't know, the, there was kind of this shift of it being used as a term to critique sort of like racist white fantasy to being a, a term that's used to sort of bludgeon anytime anyone like has the temerity to suggest anything in another society, then this one could have possibly have been better, which is a kind of grim shift, I think, in a lot of ways. And I think has done a lot of political damage by people who sort of don't quite understand what was going on. Yeah. Uh, it, and that is a shift that I noticed as well. And for a while, I thought that was really how the term was originally meant to be applied. I mean, we see it all over discussions of anthropology and philosophy and literature, which you know, it could be extended to media as a whole. Right, you have this sort of stock character of the noble savage, this person that's uncorrupted by civilization, something that some a person that symbolizes this sort of innate goodness and moral superiority, living in harmony with nature that we don't have access to because we've been corrupted by the influences of civilization. Right? It's this idealized concept of an uncivilized or sort of base man right? Or rather, person. And I mean, we see it a lot in rightist discourse being used as a tomb of derision. For example, a right-wing Australian politician named Dennis Jensen once told Parliament that the Australian government should not be funding people to live a noble, savage lifestyle in remote Indigenous communities. Jesus. And so it's, yeah. Christ, and he, it's, it's used to mock the so-called backwards lifestyles of indigenous people and 
really try to reinforce this um, white supremacist idea of their inferiority or their backwardness, uh, their regressiveness, whatever the case may be. And then on the other side, in leftist political discourse, you also see it being used as a term of derision. So on, on, in both cases, it's being used uh, as a term of derision without really a, a good grasp of what the term is, where it came from. It, for example, anarcho-primitivists are criticized for upholding this trope. And of course, leftists criticize other leftists when falling for the trope, for falling for the trope when describing indigenous histories, spiritualities, and social ecologies. It seems like you can't even bring up um, any sort of reciprocal gift economy-based relationship with the land that indigenous group might have had without somebody saying, oh, well, did you know that indigenous people also perpetuated extinctions and genocides and this, that, and the other? Um, so I, I really don't think that anytime you learn from a society that predates your own and may still persist that you're doing a noble savage, but it is um, something that I had become very conscious of in my approach to any sort of discussion. I feel like it sort of haunts the discourse, among other sort of stock characters and tropes that permeate in our political conversations. Within media, the trope has, you know, come in and out of fashion. Um, but the two main forms that it appears in is one that life is strenuous. The life of a quote-unquote primitive is strenuous. And therefore, this savage is nobly brave, hardworking, and honorable. And you have this other depiction, which is that the savage, and again... It pains me to use the term every time, but the savage is not greedy and just doesn't have a taste for luxury. So it might, you see it in, in, in certain media. It's been a long time since I've watched The Road to El Dorado. But if I recall, there is this sort of idea within um, the movie that they're so used to this, the decadence and stuff of, of gold and whatnot that they don't consider it as valuable. They consider it worthless. So there's this aspect of the trope that treats materials traditionally considered valuable um, to be something to be sort of shrugged off or flaunted. And then, of course, because what is philosophy, what is really our ontology without some sort of reference to um, the stories embedded within the Christian canon, right? There is this sort of interpretation of the story of the Garden of Eden as this, as Adam and Eve being these noble savages that live in this uncorrupted innocence and harmony with nature. And then they have to, they partake in this fruit from the tree of knowledge or, you know, they become quote unquote civilized. And then they're punished by having to engage in agriculture and, have to labor over the land instead of living in harmony with it. So it's one interpretation of that, of that story is that it's a metaphor for the dawn of agriculture and the Garden of Eden as a sort of nostalgic take. Even later on, when Europeans first encountered um, hunter-gatherer communities in the Americas, 
they compared them to being living in this sort of Eden. And today, um, you still find comparisons to Eden um, used to describe certain hunter-gatherer societies. And then, of course, uh, as this is quite topical, you often see this criticism of Noble Savage and whatever being levied against Avatar, as in the blue people, not the <laughs> not the last airbender. Um, because they have this sort of, oh, we are these utterly perfect, you know, peace-loving space hippies, all in harmony with nature, chilling and vibing. Uh, we literally have sex with trees kind of vibe. Um, and I haven't seen the second movie in the series. I only saw the first, but I wouldn't be surprised if that trend continues. I don't know. Have you all seen either or both of them? I saw the first one and I was like, I'm no, not nothing on earth can compel me to see the second one. So <laughs> I have no idea if it's true or not. <sighs> yeah. And I mean, the, the concept of the noble savage, it has its roots a lot further back than European encounters with native Americans. Right. That's sort of the intellectual lineage of the concept could actually be traced back to ancient Greece. So if you really want to reach, you could say that even back in the Akkadian epic of Gilgamesh, that Enkidu as a sort of Bushman was a kind of a depiction of that contrast between hunter-gatherer societies and agricultural societies that Gilgamesh represented, of course, you know, civilization. Um, but if we start in from ancient Greece, uh, we could see we've seen Homer and Pliny and Xenophon all idealizing the Arcadians and other groups, whether they were real or not. And then later on in Rome, um, you find Tacitus, for example, writing of the noble Germanic and Caledonian tribes in contrast with his view of Roman society as this sort of corrupt and decadent place. He even wrote speeches, like <laughs> he practically wrote fan fiction about liberty and honor for his sort of caricatures of these people. Um, other writers would also treat the Scythians comparably. You'll see it in the works of Horace and Virgil and Ovid. And then further on, you know, in the 12th century, um, the polymath Ibn um, Tufail wrote in his novel, The Living Son of the Vigilant, this idea of this sort of stripped down, back to the roots, earthy wild man who is isolated from society and has a series of trials and tribulations that lead him to knowledge of Allah by living this life in harmony with Mother Nature. Basically, theorizing this idea that people can find can find their way to to God just by being exposed to nature. Finding a th sort of a theological understanding by understanding the natural world. All of this is sort of a preamble to really what most people point to as the origins of the concept, the modern myth of the noble savage. It's most usually attributed to 18th century Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and he believed the original man 
was somebody that was free from sin, appetite, or the concept of right and wrong. And those deemed savages were not brutal, but noble, or at least this is how the story goes. The idea can also be found in theology. The founder of the Methodist Church, for example, John Wesley, again, just like the Andalusian um, novel writer, believed that, you know, there's this idea of man in the beginning at the roots uh, connected with nature is not as corrupted, is more connected with nature and with God compared to the so-called degeneracy found in 18th century society, compared to the disease and materialism seen throughout the world. David Graeber, um, in one of his recent posthumous works, um, Pirate Enlightenment, and in a lot of his other works as well, he sort of grapples with, with this idea of the Enlightenment, right? And how flawed our understanding of the Enlightenment is, how our approach to the Enlightenment as a sort of era um, unique to Europe or this era centered upon Europe is flawed in its approach because it leaves out the realities that the Enlightenment occurred um, as a result of Europeans' interactions and exposure to the rest of the world. You had these um, European explorers and colonizers and scientists venturing out, trading, interacting with these different groups of people, um, hearing their ideas about things, and then going back and writing best-selling books about these societies and how they believe and what they think and how they organize their society. One chronicler, for example, um, noted that among the Indians or Native Americans, that land belonged to all, just like the sun and water. Mine and thine, the seeds of all evils, do not exist for those, those people. They live in a golden age, in open gardens, without laws or books, without judges, and they naturally follow goodness. Rousseau, Thomas More, and others also idealized the naked savages as innocent of sin. Another one wrote about how they are equal in every respect, and so in harmony with their surroundings, they all live justly and in conformity with the laws of nature. Basically, we, have, we just found a whole continent of people basically living in a Garden of Eden. But then this concept of ecological nobility that is perpetuated is, of course, flawed. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, there were cases of overexploitation and damage done to the environment. And yet, we also find in a lot of indigenous groups the living in compatibility with the ecological limitations of their home area, getting familiar with the lands that they live on and what it takes to preserve them for the next generations. A lot of what is seen as a sort of virgin landscape was profoundly shaped by the controlled burns, the horticulture, the herding, uh, and other activities um, done by indigenous groups throughout the Americas, for example, in the case of the Amazon rainforest, and in Australia, as another case, where the controlled burns really shaped that landscape. 
over thousands and thousands of years. To this day, you know, the methods used by indigenous peoples have been found to be, you know, superior to those used by non-indigenous peoples living in the same habitat. Methods like polycropping, uh, techniques to enhance soil fertility, uh, sustainable harvesting. And of course, there are these culturally encoded mores that are, you know, placed in these communities that help result in the preservation of these resources. Then you also have to account for the fact that no culture is stagnant. Every culture changes over time. And as a result of the capitalist market economy, there is this pressure to overexploit the land for the sake of profit. You know, a lot of where these documented patterns of uh, land cultivation and land uh, preservation are found is usually in the outskirts uh, and the margins of the capitalist market economy. Such practices can be more difficult to find right in the belly of the beast. For example, um, the Irapa Yukpa in Western Venezuela, they were traditionally mobile over an extensive area, planting food, searching game, and now they're stationary, now they're settled, and now they sort of are forced to adopt a different lifestyle in response to their new material conditions. When you had that lesser population density and greater freedom to roam, it was easier to satis- both satisfy subsistence needs and also maintain the health and vitality of the ecosystem over an extended period of time. But now that surpluses are needed, now that agriculture has been um, reduced to a very small portion of the population and that those techniques are now uh, expected to be more intensive in order to keep up with the demands, those lifestyles and those cultural mores and those practices have had to change. but. Back to the idea of the noble savage, right? And particularly drilling into this idea of the noble aspect of it, right? Because there's some confusion, as Graeber points out, between these two meanings associated with the word nobility. You could say someone is noble in the sense that they are, you know, moral, good, uh, exemplary in their behavior, in their etiquette, in their... uh, ethical standards. Or you could say somebody is noble in the sense they have this position in a sort of a class system, a hereditary position in a class system, an elevated economic status. Rousseau didn't come up with the phrase, and in fact he never used it in his writings. What Ter Ellingson, a historian, discovered or rather explored in his book the myth of the noble savage is that the term was coined over a century before rousseau's birth um, by a guy named by a french lawyer ethnographer named mark lescarbo and lescarbo described indigenous peoples as truly noble not having any action but as generous whether we consider their hunting or their employment in the wars 
the nobility was more so associated not with just moral qualities like generosity and you know good behavior but also nobility from a legal standpoint the lives of freedom the privileges and the responsibilities that the indigenous people enjoyed were also found according to Lescarbo, within the European nobility. In Cannibals and Kings, an anthropologist by the name of Marvin Harris went on to explain why Lescarbo had recognized nobility among the indigenous people that he visited. In a lot of the band and village societies, there was a level of economic and political freedom that very few enjoyed in his day, and even today, you know? People decided for themselves how long they wanted to work on a particular day, what they would do, or if they would even work at all. You know, they didn't have to deal with the taxes and rents and tribute payments that, and one could even extend to say debts, that keep people today and in the past so confined and restricted in their limited life on this earth. What should have been, you know, this sort of norm or standard, you know, of human freedom is in contrast with European society, just like mind blowing. Yeah, there's another David Graeber. Actually, I've been talking about there never was a West a lot recently, and one of the things that he he talks about in that in in there never was a West is this like trick that European writers use when they're looking at another society, which is like they 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 present themselves as like people whose behaviors are sort of are entirely rational and they're solving a logic puzzle. And then they go find like I don't know what they consider to be the weirdest thing, and so like sorry, they go find what they consider to be the weirdest thing that like another culture does, and look at it through this you know this lens which draws in the reader to be doing this sort of logic puzzle and trying to figure out oh how could these people do this thing, and then you know if if you pull back the lens a little bit and look at like what these supposedly objective European like theorists are doing it's like well okay these guys all have these really weird tea, tea ceremonies and like they eat the they they eat the flesh of their god every weekend and stuff like that and so you, you get this really interesting but but the the, the when when you read it through their their sort of colonial ethnography you get this image of both societies that's very weird that that lets you sort of that that conceals the fact that yeah like when when these european writers are talking about meeting indigenous people like you kind of the way that it's written makes it very easy to sort of like do this colonial thing where you forget that every single french writer who is writing about this lives in like the most hierarchical society the world's ever seen yeah yeah that's so true and it's like, well, yeah, of course, like they, 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 they went to literally any other place on earth and talked to people and were like, oh my God, these people are like, are really free. And it's like, well, yeah, it's because these guys live under the French, like, and they're like French absolutism. This is like, I think Graeber's line was like, this is a society where every single person, when they walk, when they walk into a dining room immediately knows the class of every single other person sitting around the table by like how they hold their silverware. Yeah, it's, it's absurd, you know, when a lot of the rest of the world is like, you know, living on the generosity of the people around them, being reliable in, you know, the foundations of, you know, community, not even necessarily 
because I mean, obviously there were hierarchies to be found within a lot of these cultures and communities, but not to the extent that you would have found in, in some of these European societies, not even close. Yeah. These are the, the European, like, I don't know, like Europe has been really, really, I mean, you know, this is the, the, the sort of organizational trend of European society for like the last like four or five hundred years has been just in, like, incredible, unfathomable centralization on, on on a level that was just is just sort of incomprehensible to most of the people who've ever lived. But we treat as sort of normal now because it's a society that we've grown up under. Yes, yeah, it's, it's an. <laughs> I'm trying to draw a comparison between Europeans encountering this level of freedom in other societies, and sort of like. I can't think of any specific example right now, but you know how, you know, growing up as a child in a particular household, your house would have certain norms that you think is just like universal, you know, like everybody does yeah. this. Obviously, this is just a fact of life in the universe, but in yeah. reality, it's just like some weird quirk when your parents had <laughs> that you just had to grow up with. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like for example, oh, this is a really weird example, but let's say for example, you had uh, like ceramic dishes were not allowed to be used ever, right? They were purely for decoration. And your parents told you that it's some grave moral sin to eat off of ceramic dishes. And then you go to somebody's house and they have all their plates laid out and you're like, you're utterly baffled by how they're able to eat off of ceramic dishes. If I could think of a better example, um, but for now, yeah, that's what I'll, 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 I'll roll with. Anyway, despite recognizing all of this freedom and stuff, they were kind of like disgusted by it, at least some of them. You know, some of them, when publishing their texts in Europe, would put their own liberal ideas into the mouths of indigenous people to say, oh, I'm not saying this. This is obviously like treasonous, and I would never say this. But this indigenous guy who I spoke to the other day, he said it, and so I'm just publishing what he said. Um, so that took place sometimes. Um, and then there are also those who were like utterly disgusted by the liberty uh, exhibited in, in some of these societies. Um, but whether they saw that freedom as a positive or as a negative, um, despite all their fluffy words about indigenous liberties, that didn't really matter for indigenous people at the end of the day, because, you know, through the centuries, empires continued to swallow indigenous lands. And the phrase basically disappeared for about 250 years because the idea of the noble savage was reversed by this stereotype of the dangerous, brutal savage. Like, how dare they defend their land and way of life, right? It wasn't until 1859 that the term was resurrected by a guy named John Crawford, a white supremacist. Uh, he wanted to become president, or rather, right, he was attempting to become president of the Ethnological Society of London. And he was very disdainful of this idea emerging in anthropology and philosophy of universal human rights. Like, how dare you, you know? Uh, so he introduced the phrase... Uh, resurrecting it after 250 years to make a speech to the society. 
And he, by the way, he missed, he's the one who first misattributed this speech, um, the phrase to Rousseau. Basically ridiculing, using the noble savage as a term to ridicule those who sympathized with such, quote, less advanced cultures. And so that sort of fabrication where he attributed it to Rousseau and he built up this straw man to blow it down. You know, it's basically this myth of the myth of the noble savage. He creates a straw man of the noble savage as a myth. And then that's what's perpetuated. But his myth of the noble savage was the one that was a myth. So it's, you know, (laughs) the myth of the myth of the noble savage. And so as the British Empire was reaching the height of its power, and he was, you know, trying to ridicule anybody who had anything nice to say about indigenous people, that straw man was used to continue to advocate for the extermination. Crawford's version of Noble Savage became the source for every citation of the myth by anthropologists from Lubbock, Tyler, or Boas through the scholars of the late 20th century. So even 100 years later, people were still using the term that he came up with, this rhetorical cheap shot that he used. And to this day, it continues to polarize our discussions and obstruct any sort of nuanced approach to hunter-gatherer life. And having discovered all of this, I have to say it really made me feel like a part of history. (laughs) There never was a noble savage myth, at least not in the sense of this straw man of simple societies living in happy innocence. Travelers usually accounted for both virtues and vices. They spoke of the positives of these societies and also things that they weren't too fond of. Both the concept of the noble savage and the concept of the brutal savage are fantasies constructions of a European mind that was intent on boxing indigenous people in this sort of suspended state of either purity or evil. Going forward, I think it's really silly to continue to perpetuate the term. I think it really keeps us from engaging with history properly. And I mean, even if somebody is exaggerating or expunging certain aspects of a particular society or culture, that should be engaged with directly. You know, I don't think you should fall back on a lazy trope popularized by a white supremacist. I mean, we live under states now. We live under capitalism now. And I don't think, I don't fault people for trying to imagine what life must have been like before then, before these institutions became so all-encompassing. What becomes an issue is when we take, you know, these past societies and we use them as these beacons of virtue, instead of going back and trying to take their their lessons and their practices and adopting them and interpreting them to move forward. There was a lot of freedom and there still is a lot of freedom left to be uncovered in our history. It is obscured in our history classes. It isn't taught. Instead, we're taught facts and figures and wars and notable um notable individuals. Um, We're taught of kings and dictators and high priests and emperors and prime ministers and presidents and 
chiefs and judges and jailers and dungeons, penitentiaries and concentration camps. This is our existence now, but it doesn't have to be. And if we're going to have an honest exploration of our history in order to inform our future, we have to free our imaginations of this lazy troop of the noble savage. That's it for me for this episode. You can check me out on youtube.com slash andrewism and also on Twitter at underscore St. Drew, as well as my patreon.com slash St. Drew. This is It Could Happen Here. Yeah, you can find us in the usual places on Twitter, Instagram. And yeah, go be free. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.